Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, the only podcast that makes you smarter and stupider all at the same time. I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my lifelong friend, Mr. Bo Ransdell, each season we select six movies that are all part of an overall theme. Now here's where things get good. For each episode, we do exhaustive research, which is mostly us just noodling around the internet and reading a book here and there, and then we pull together all of these bits of tid, and we weave them into a fascinating story to give you some behind-the-scenes information all about each movie. I know, right? Now, you're probably thinking, that all sounds pretty damn awesome, but we're not even close to being done, because after that, we give you a review of the entire movie from start to finish to make stupid jokes and do voices and use just enough profanity that gets us in trouble with the parents of curious 12-year-olds. Now, this season is very near and dear to my heart because I love James Bond movies, and we're taking on six 007 films in this season's theme, Bonds, James Bonds, where each movie features a different actor portraying Ian Fleming's most famous secret agent. Or maybe he's a spy. He's definitely not a private investigator or a cop. I know that for sure. But look, here's what I do know. He's a ninth degree horn dog with a permanent get out of jail free card when it comes to killing people. This is episode three, featuring Roger Moore in his final performance as 007 in A View to a Kill. We got a theme song by Duran Duran. We got a former Charlie's Angel as a Bond girl. And there's Grace Jones and Christopher Walken impressions out the wazoo. You know what? Let's not waste any more time. We're going to get Bowen here to introduce us to what is universally lauded as one of the absolute worst James Bond movies of all time. Oh, I forgot to mention, we don't really feature good movies on this podcast. It really helps with the making you stupider part of the actual show. But you know what? Bo, why don't you get in here and sprinkle some smarts in these people's ears before we cram them full of some homemade stupid. Bo, you're on. The classic Bond is Sean Connery. Chad's Bond, as you heard in the last episode, is George Lazenby. My Bond? Without question, my James Bond is Roger Moore. Not because I particularly like Roger Moore, mind you. It was simply a product of the time and circumstance. Because I was young when the Moore movies were made, by a sort of cultural osmosis, Roger Moore's face was the one I thought of when I heard the name James Bond. There is an inevitability about that, that while I may think other actors are better in the role, or other eras of the Bond franchise may produce better movies, Roger Moore will never not be the face of James Bond to me. It's like seeing pictures of your father and his father and their big bald heads, and you know for sure, that big bald head is yours one day. It is destined, and it is unavoidable. And so that's how I think of Roger Moore as Bond. Destined. Unavoidable. It seemed like he was always meant to play the super spy from Ian Fleming's story. And that's kind of true. Moore was exactly the kind of man Fleming was thinking of when he wrote the James Bond stories. Well, Fleming was thinking of himself. And in the early 1960s, when James Bond was being cast, Fleming thought Moore was the man for the role. But before we get to that critical juncture, let's set our way back clock For October of 1927, two whole years before the big stock market crash, in the height of the Roaring Twenties, Roger Moore was born in London to a policeman and a housewife. When he was in high school, 
Moore was a participant in Operation Pied Piper, in which children were moved from high population centers like London to more rural areas to study and live. That was on account of all the German bombs landing on cities which had the distinct possibility of blowing up said children. When he was only 15, Moore quit school completely. He wanted to be an artist and found work as an apprentice at an animation studio. Now, while he was enthusiastic about the work, an incident involving Moore and some missing animation cells led to him being fired for incompetence, a rationale I am all too familiar with. As luck or fate would have it, Moore's detective father was called in on a job involving Brian Desmond Hurst. That director, who is probably best remembered for having directed the 1951 Alistair Sim version of A Christmas Carol, had been robbed and Moore's father was there to crack the case. And also maybe introduce his floundering kid to a big-time movie producer who could maybe give him a job. And that's just what happened. Hearst thought Moore had easy good looks and used him as an extra in a couple of movies while paying for Roger Moore's tuition at the Royal Academy of Drama. While there, Moore met his first wife, whom he married at the age of 18. Not wasting any time, this guy. Dorn Van Stein was a student at the academy with Moore, and she was an ice skater. She was also six years older than Moore, and Moore would later claim that she would punch and scratch him. The couple argued over money, and Van Stein's belief that Moore would never really make a living as an actor on account of not being very good at it. But Moore was determined, and he had a lot going for him. He was a handsome young white guy with some connections in the business. Many have done more with less. He popped up in some television and a few movies, but nothing substantial. One of his bigger gigs at the time was serving as the face of knit clothing in an early 50s ad campaign. You should look up the pictures. He is 80% dimpled chin. Moore decided it was time to try his hand at Hollywood and moved to California from England in 1953, and he landed some television work there. He even got himself a fancy pants studio contract with MGM. Studio contracts essentially bought the rights to a person, placing Moore in small roles in their films like The Last Time I Saw Paris and The King's Thief. But Moore had ditched his first abusive wife by now and married a whole new abusive wife by the name of Dorothy Squires. She wasn't six years older than Moore. She was 12, so she must have been twice as good. She smashed a guitar over Moore's head during their marriage, which had been described as tumultuous. In fairness to Squires, Moore was at least flirting with, and in some cases, most definitely having affairs with, his co-stars. While their marriage was complicated, to say the least, and Moore had to get legal restraint to prevent Squires from publishing old love letters she found from Moore to Italian actress Luisa Mattioli, Roger Moore had some sentiment left for her. When Squires was diagnosed with cancer in 1996, Moore paid for her hospitalization and her treatment. While he and Squires were duking it out, Moore was given a third lead in an MGM movie called Diane, a period piece romance. And it tanked, hard enough that MGM released Moore from his contract and ushered him out of MGM completely. It would be 1958 before Roger Moore found any real success as an actor. He was cast as the lead in a television series based on Sir Walter Scott's swashbuckler, Ivanhoe. While it wasn't the most challenging role in a show meant as a children's adventure series, it earned Moore a lot of recognition. After the show ended a couple of years later, Moore bounced around some more on television, doing mostly bit parts. He got a lead in a movie called The Miracle, but it didn't lead to any more screen success. 
There was a show called The Alaskans, and Moore even took over for James Garner in the Maverick television series for a season as English cousin Bo Maverick, no relation. The best bit about his time as the lead in Maverick is that he had some practice. The show he did previously, The Alaskans, it used a lot of the same scripts from Maverick episodes, only changing the names and locations to fit another show. Also of note, Sean Connery, 007, number 001 himself, was flown to Hollywood to test for the role of Bo Maverick also, no relation, and then turned down the role. So in the early 60s, Roger Moore is in Italy doing a movie called Rape of the Sabine Women when he met his future wife, Luisa Mattioli, of the letters that we mentioned earlier. When he announced to his current wife, Dorothy Squires, that he intended to leave the marriage, Squires said, I don't think so. That left Mattioli and Moore to live in sin for a few years before a judge would finalize the divorce between Moore and Squires, who, by the way, threw a brick through their window one time. She sounds fun. At around the same time he was falling for Louisa and getting bricks hurled at him by Dorothy, what would have been Moore's defining role landed in his lap. Sort of. See, Moore was a great fan of Leslie Chartres' novels, featuring the charming spy Simon Templer. So much so, Moore tried to buy the rights to The Saint novels, but found that they were in the hands of television producer Lou Grade, who would do some great shows like The Prisoner, and was the guy who brought The Muppet Show to television with his company ITC. Lou Grade liked Roger Moore, who had always wanted to play Simon Templer. And just like that, Roger Moore was The Saint. And The Saint was a hit. It ran until 1968, and it was shown in 80 countries. It was the role of a lifetime for any other actor. And Moore was perfect for it. He had a sly delivery to his lines and brought the audience in on a shared joke. Isn't this absurd and wonderful, he seemed to ask. Moore directed a few of the episodes himself and bought into the show as a co-owner when it made the move to color during its run. While The Saint was giving television viewers the spy-related adventures of a British scamp, Ian Fleming's James Bond was coming to the big screen. While there are rumors that producer Albert Cubby Broccoli wanted more from the very beginning, this is more anecdotal than factual. The first time anyone publicly mentioned Roger Moore in association with the Bond franchise was when producer Harry Saltzman mentioned it to the press in 1968. He said he thought Moore would make a great Bond, but also worried that years as Simon Templer might be too close to Bond for the role to come off. When Connery decided to leave the franchise in 1966, Moore got wind that he might be in consideration for the role, but he was currently playing the saint, and his television contracts would prevent him from slipping into the polished shoes of 007. When the saint wound down, Moore starred in a couple of movies that weren't particularly memorable, and then Lou Grade brought him another series, The Persuaders, co-starring Tony Curtis. The show was all about two millionaire playboys bouncing around Europe having adventures. Moore was paid a million pounds for his role, which was a record at the time. It was also said that co-producers Lou Grade, Roger Moore, and a guy named Robert Baker never signed a contract about The Persuaders. It was a gentleman's handshake, enough to seal a deal to make the show, and that's probably a thing that never happens anymore. After The Persuaders ended after only a couple of seasons, Moore found himself in an interesting spot spy-wise. He was free of contracts, George Lazenby had announced his one-and-done attitude about the series, and he happened to be a member of a regular card game involving producers of the James Bond series. 
the guy that Ian Fleming wanted all along was now free of obligations, established as a charming spy already, and presumably giving a couple of grand to the producers when he went chasing straights. It seemed like a foregone conclusion that Roger Moore would assume the role of James Bond, and with the production of Live and Let Die, that's just what he did. After the producers had him cut his hair thrice before agreeing to its length and lose almost 20 pounds so that he could be the square-jawed Englishman of the novels. Only that was never Roger Moore, nor was it Bond during Moore's tenure. There are numerous interviews where Moore suggests that the thrill of Bond was in its absurdity. It's all a bunch of crazy make ups so why not let the audience in on the joke? While he never broke the fourth wall and spoke directly to the audience, with his hammy one-liners and slightly detached persona, Moore's performance was a sort of collaboration with the audience. Isn't this ridiculous, he seemed to say, but what fun it is too. He boasts the longest tenure as Bond chronologically and ties with Connery for movies, if you count the non-canon Connery effort, which leads to an interesting moment in cinema history. In 1983, Roger Moore was set to star in the Eon-produced film Octopussy. Eon, of course, produced all of the canonical James Bond films. Meanwhile, Sean Connery had already reprised the role of James Bond once after George Lazenby's sudden departure for Diamonds Are Forever. For that dip back into the James Bond pool, Connery made a sweet $1.25 million and secured two follow-up projects of his choosing. Then, Roger Moore took over, and he was six deep into the franchise when Never Say Never Again was released. Connery's return to the role is a weird tale unto itself. When the Bond series was still being developed, Ian Fleming and producer Kevin McClory worked together with a screenwriter to get a Bond movie off the ground. That was called Longitude 78 West, but it was deemed too expensive and the project was shuttered. Based on the notes and that script, Ian Fleming wrote the novel Thunderball, which released in 1961. Kevin McClory, on reading Thunderball, sued the shit out of Ian Fleming for using ideas they generated together. Naturally, Fleming did not credit McClory or screenwriter Jack Whittingham, and a judge ruled that McClory must be credited as a producer on the film version of Thunderball and would retain the right to make a further adaptation of that novel, but only 10 years after Eon produced their version of that movie. Whew, but that's what McClory did. He and Connery worked on the project for years, well past the point where Connery had famously said he would never play Bond again. It was Connery's wife, Michelle, who proposed the movie's title, based on Connery's proclamation once McClory got the movie off the ground. The movie is, of course, a retelling of the novel Thunderball, which had already been filmed, but the movie still did big business. Just not as much as the Eon-produced film Octopussy, which came out several months before, during the summer, while Never Say Never Again opened in October pretty close to 37 years to the day before we released this episode. Roger Moore would portray James Bond for 12 years, and finally with the subject of this episode's film, A View to a Kill. The title was taken from an old Fleming Bond story called From A View to a Kill, and the credits at the end of the previous Bond entry, Octopussy, reference this full title. That was abbreviated for the film version, and that's just about all it has to do with the original work. The screen story is brand new, co-written by Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maibaum, both of whom worked as writers and producers on the series previously. There wasn't anything all that exceptional about the pre-production of the film, save for the age of its star. Roger Moore was 57 when he shot A View to a Kill, and he looked every bit of it. Aging right along with him was Lois Maxwell, for whom A View to a Kill would be her last turn as Moneypenny. She campaigned to be brought back in the role of M, 
a natural promotion in the series, one would think, but producer Cubby Broccoli deemed it too outlandish in the series that had gone to space and featured KGB clones that a woman might assume such a place of power. To fill the cast, producers looked to a striking figure to play the film's villain, Max Zorin. David Bowie was approached, but he'd already been courted to play the Goblin King in Labyrinth, and he'd also read the script, so he was a hard pass. Years later, when Bowie was asked about it, he said it was too pedestrian a film to interest him much, and he never liked the James Bond movies all that much in the first place. That guy really was a genius. Singer-turned-actor Sting got offered the part, and he turned it down too, but it was Christopher Walken who, of course, accepted the role, and he had last been seen in theaters as the hero of the excellent and underseen film adaptation of The Dead Zone. Of all the performances, critics most noted Walken's psychotic portrayal of Max Zorin as the highlight of the movie, and they sure ain't wrong about that. Grace Jones got tapped to play Zorin's sidekick Mayday. Jones was a model and performer who made the move from Jamaica to New York when she was just a child. She was world-renowned as a model and had a reputation for being fierce and maybe a little bit nutty. She appeared in some low-budget movies in the 70s, did some music videos, was kind of a club icon. But in the 80s, she went mainstream with a role in the Schwarzenegger sequel, Conan the Destroyer, before tackling Mayday. Roger Moore found her notoriously difficult on set, and the word was that the two barely spoke by the end of filming. Considering Grace Jones was something of a feminist and gay icon on set with a bunch of old stodgy and generally backward British guys, it's easy to imagine such friction on the set. By modern standards, these sets sound awful. Moore noted the sea change in the way women demanded to be treated on the sets of Bond films, saying, I remember Lois Childs on Moonraker going mad when Cubby observed what a cute ass she had. She screamed at him, What do you mean by that, you chauvinist pig? How dare you talk to me like that? He was just saying she looked lovely. I didn't see it was anything to get upset about. I'm sure. On the heroine side, the newest Bond girl was Tanya Roberts as Stacy Sutton. She was best known at the time as one of the latter-day Charlie's Angels, the Mormons, and had just done back-to-back loincloth-based roles in The Beastmaster and Sheena, where Roberts played the titular Queen of the Jungle. Emphasis on titular. After A View to a Kill, she was about five years away from a streak of B-grade erotic thrillers whose VHS covers are nearly interchangeable. I dare you to try the Night Eyes, Inner Sanctum, Legal Tender, Deep Down, Sins of Desire challenge. In addition to its cast, A View to a Kill has the only number one theme song from any Bond movie. Duran Duran's synthy take on the Bond theme is a personal favorite of mine and was purportedly inspired by band member John Taylor, who happened to be at a party with Albert Cubby Broccoli, going up to him after a few drinks and slurring, When are you going to get someone decent to do one of your theme songs? The film was released to some middling reviews, but it did well financially. Most of the complaints were about the tired formula, and especially the age of Roger Moore as Bond. His leering at young women was getting creepy, something not lost on Roger Moore himself. This would be his last film, and he stated some regret for having waited that long to retire. Moore said in an interview 20 years after the release of the movie, I was only about 400 years too old for the part. Even senior James Bond Sean Connery agreed, I'm too old and Roger's too old too. A critic for the Washington Post said of Moore, He's not believable anymore in the action sequences, even less so in the romantic scenes. It's like watching women fall all over Gabby Hayes. That's a critic who earned his coffee and pack of cigarettes for the day for that line. Well done, sir. 
Moore didn't care much for the film in retrospect. He called it disgusting, in fact, citing the film's tendency to linger on Zorn, cutting down his enemies with sadistic glee. That, for Moore, was not what Bond or the film series was. This was something beyond the good-natured silliness of these spy films. This was gratuitous. When Moore stepped away from Bond, he knew he'd never reach those highs in his career again, and he didn't, despite appearing in many films after he retired from the franchise. He often poked fun of Bond outside the movies, including his turn in The Cannonball Run. See Pick 6 Movies Season 10 Episode 1 for that one. And he was good friends with Sean Connery, a fraternity of spies who have hung up their Walther PPKs. And Moore gave deeply of himself to support UNICEF, an organization dedicated to the safety and well-being of children the world over. In the early 90s, Moore left his wife Louisa Mattioli for his final partner, Christina Tholstrup. He'd been diagnosed with prostate cancer earlier in the year and said he had reassessed his life and marriage. When he spoke of his final marriage, he called it peaceful and loving and calm. A lot of things lacking in his previous marriages. Sadly, Christina died of cancer at the young age of 47 in July of 2016. Roger Moore followed in 2017. In the latter stages of his life, he'd suffered from prostate cancer, cardiovascular issues that required a pacemaker, type 2 diabetes, and more. When he passed, he did so at his home, surrounded by family, and leaving behind a grand legacy of film. Moore understood Bond differently than other actors who played the role. My whole reaction was always, he is not a real spy, he said. You can't be a real spy and have everybody in the world know who you are and what your drink is. That's just hysterically funny. Even about his own acting, Moore was modest and self-deprecating. I have three expressions, eyebrow up, eyebrow down, and both of them at the same time. And they used it very well, I must say. I spent my life playing heroes because I look like one, he said. Practically everything I've been offered didn't require much beyond looking like me. And yet, he not only looked as he did, but he did so with a wry attitude and a sense that what happened on screen was nonsense. He knew it, and he knew you knew it too. That's why more is my bond. Part fate, part familiarity, part sly wit. But what about this last movie, called, by some, the worst Bond movie of all time? Is it really so bad? Is Walken enough to save it? Is Roger Moore really that old in this? Let's get Chad in here to help answer these questions. Ladies and gentlemen, Max's and Mayday's, it's 1985's A View to a Kill. Hit it, trumpet guy! Welcome back to Pick 6 Movies. I, of course, am half of your hosts, Bo Ransdell. With me, as always, the the other half of the host, the the double O to my seven, uh, Mr. Chad Cooper. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Bo. I'm excited to talk about Roger Moore as 007. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, this, this is an era of Bond that, even though I haven't watched almost any of the Roger Moore movies, I still feel like this is my era of Bond. 
I agree with your introduction. I grew up on Bond just like you did with Roger Moore as the face of that character. And whether it was movies that we saw in the theater or movies that were shown on ABC or CBS as a big heralded event back in the day, he was really the James Bond that you and I grew up with. What I didn't realize as a younger person is that he was a skeevy old dude that was just looking to get a piece of puss at every turn. (laughs) The reason I knew he was James Bond is because he showed up in the Cannibal Run. And I was like, oh, right, James Bond. And that's the the realization I had watching of You to a Kill was that the reason I think of him as James Bond is because the number of times I've seen Cannibal Run. The Roger Moore James Bonds, as you noted in your introduction, they were more cheeky and they were more playful. And having watched all of these movies recently, they progressively get a little more outrageous with every outing that Moore took as James Bond. But much like the political environment in which we live, the pendulum swings. And I think when we go into the next Bond of Timothy Dalton, it really, it's like, like, quit fucking around. Don't be stupid. This is a super spy. Cut the shit and take this seriously. But Bo, in Octopussy, he flies a jet out of a horse's ass. Like, that That sounds pretty great. Oh, and by the way, the name of the movie was Octopussy. See, that's where you lose me. That's the kind of shit where I'm like, (laughs) that, like, jets flying out of horse's asses, I'm on board. You call the movie Octopussy, I have no interest in seeing it. You know when they went in front of the MPAA, boy, they were like, absolutely not, sir. And they're like, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, all right? Let me ask you a question. What's wrong with the word octopus? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, sir. All right. What's wrong with what's wrong with the uh, pussy cat? Well, nothing's wrong with that, sir. Octopussy cat. I'm just leaving off the cat. It's octopussy. Case closed. It was probably more like you know some dude from MGM was like, "There's gonna be an envelope under your chairs." <laughs> When they tell you what the name of this movie is, don't say a fucking word. We're big supporters of the RNC and the DNC. Which one are you? R or D? That's what we support. Put our movie in the theater. We love the MPAA, and we want to make sure that you, as an organization, can move forward thanks to our generous contribution and also Octopussy Opens in June. The original title was Smelly Octopussy. Whoa, ho, ho, where you going? Hold on. James Bond and hysterectomy or something. It just it's just that the kind of like sophomore and juvenile shit that I, I just don't have a lot of time for. And and also uh the, the other thing it goes back to is you remember that Saturday Night Live book we read uh as kids, the backstage history of Saturday Night Live? Uh-huh. And in that book, one of the things they say were rules in the first few seasons of Saturday Night Live is that you didn't lean on silly names. They called it the Walter Crankcase School of Comedy. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no matter what, that is, it's like, puns it is just the shittiest form of humor we are not doing it and and that kind of got in my dna so when i'm watching a movie and there's a real dumb name in it i kind of wince and that's kind of mother's milk to the bond series is right you know what it the pussy galores and (laughs) at any rate right this is the last movie that roger moore played bond and that's one of the reasons we're doing it because he should not have done this movie 
No, not at all. He was about a million years old. Yeah, it was sexier watching Leslie Nielsen try to bed Priscilla Presley in the naked gun one, two and a half, and 33 and a third. So let's get into it. Let's dig into a view to yeah, a kill. Yeah. It opens, uh, which I didn't note in the intro, but but this is one of the few times that a movie begins with like a disclaimer in the Bond Dude. series. It's a legal disclaimer. That's what you want <laughs> right. at the beginning of your James Bond movie. The producers, writers, and herein associated with James Bond, Eon Productions, and especially Albert R. Broccoli, hereby see that neither the name Zorin or any other name or character in this film is meant to portray any real company or actual person therein. Enjoy the confusion, audience. Roll the picture. As a member of the audience, you're like, wait. Are they talking what? about my cousin, Bobby Zorin? What? Huh? It only draws more attention to the fact that the name of this company was based on a real company. Nobody knew this. The internet wasn't a thing. It's not like this is Citizen Kane and they're taking pot shots at William Randolph Hearst. I mean, this goes back to like our cubby broccoli being like, all right, what's going on here? The name is Zorin? It's the letter A instead of the letter I? Are you fucking kidding me? That Yes, yes, sir. Yes, we are Zor-an, and this is Zor-in. Yeah, it's a right? totally We've different thing. We've been in business since 1981, all right? I've been in business since 1961. Well, I've been making make... James Bond pictures, bringing them in on time and under budget for the last 25 years. Mm-hmm. Now, you're going to sit here and you're going to tell me that some company I never heard of That's is right. going to keep James Bond out of the movie theaters this year? Yeah, I don't think you, so. You know what we make? Do you know what we make? You're you about to make a mistake make? is what you're about to make. I'll tell you what we make. We make computer chips. How do you like that, Mr. Cubby Brockhole or whatever your name is? Hang on. I'm going to bring in somebody uh, from the other room who might give a shit about this. Oh, hey, hey. Whoa, is that a gun? Uh, guns. Oh, I don't see anything on this desk, do you? Look, I was just trying to make a quick buck, all right? I was going to sue you for like, I don't know, like $27 or something. Like, whatever you want. You know, just put a disclaimer at the beginning of your movie and say, Zoran Corporation is not Zoran Corporation or something like that. We'll be fine. Oh, I've, I've wet myself. I agree to your terms and now dance. Da, 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 da. <laughs> I said the Charleston this time. Bang, bang, bang. So sorry, Mr. Broccoli. I heard how you killed that guy who had been at the Three Stooges. I'm looking forward to that because Cubby Broccoli seems like a real asshole. But all of, all of that was accurate. That's how the name got, or the, the title card got on the film. That was a dramatization. So then we see Grandpa James Bond. <laughs> Kind of hobble into the the frame and turn towards the camera. Oh, hello, Dolly. And then shoots at, at the camera and then slowly walks back off. Dude, this movie came out in 1985. And do you know what was the top grossing film of the year 1985? Ooh, I'm sure I will when I hear it. Shame on you. It was Back to the Future. Oh, sure. Followed by Beverly Hills Cop, Rambo, First Blood Part 2, Rocky IV, starring Sly Stallone. Yeah, that's a stay tuned. And and after that was Cocoon, starring Wilford Brimley, who was 49 years old when he was cast in that film and turned 50 when they were filming that movie and seven years younger than roger moore <laughs> playing james bond the guy who was like we're gonna go to space because we never grow old and we're never gonna die <laughs> that guy 
<laughs> Should have been James Bond. That I would have loved to have seen. Well, I'll tell you what, Em. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get in that car. I'm going to drive to Spectre. And I'm going to shoot that goddamn Blofeld right in the face. <laughs> and anybody tries to stop me, I'm going to punch him in the kisser. God damn it. God damn it. <laughs> we need to find an excuse to do Cocoon. I got a Donna Michi impression I've been itching to spring on the world. What in the Make fuck? Make a Donna Michi impression. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's right up there with like, I, I do an amazing Richard Keel. You know? <laughs> Why on earth would you? And how did you learn that? But all right. So Grandpa James Bond shoots at the screen and then we're, we're on an ice field. Uh huh. And I'll tell you, here's what I will give to a view to a kill, especially this opening sequence up to a point. I know. <laughs> has some really good, like some good cinematography. And, and the other thing I will say about this movie is the incidental and in, in ambiance music of the, of the film, I think is great. Something that's interesting about watching all of the Bonds back to back to back, as I've been torturing myself to do over the past few weeks, <laughs> is how little they rely on the original James Bond score as the film series progresses. It really becomes, even in this movie, a lot of the music there are these... Um, it's like reprises of the the theme song and stuff like that. Exactly. They don't necessarily rely on the... But like you don't get that, but it's it's just a a, a more up tempo or more somber version of the pop song. But I think that that also may be reflective of the era that it came out because in the 1980s it was like you got a movie, you got a hit song. They're gonna see the film, they're gonna buy the soundtrack, they're gonna go get a happy meal, they're gonna get the dolls. Like it's all synergy, people. We bring it all together. Give me Brian Adams. What are we gonna put on the MTV? But yeah, so it's this big ice field and right. Russians are afoot, Chad. They're they're flying helicopters around. They're on skis and snowmobiles, reminiscent of the last film we covered. And they're mm. hunting for James Bond. You know how I knew they were Russians? Because on the subtitles, it said, speaking Russian. It also sounds kind of like Russian. And I think I saw a sickle and hammer on a couple of uniforms. <laughs> but that could have been Bernie Sanders, Chad. I can't be sure. We have to find Bond. I'm sorry. We see this guy in all white and he's got this puffy fur head face covering and these oversized snow goggles to conceal the true identity of the stunt person who will pretend to be Roger Moore portraying James Bond in the forthcoming action sequences. It is very similar to the outfit Han Solo wore on Hoth. It is. Yeah. And Bond uses this doohickey that beeps and boops until he finds a dead body in the snow. And then these other Russians are up in this helicopter again, speaking Russian. And they're looking down at him, but they don't see Bond because he's dressed all in white. But then all the Russian soldiers are wearing green military uniforms, which that seems like a big miss, right? For snow-based forces, yes. Seems like it would either A, make them easier to shoot or B, easier to capture on film. It is not doing the job of camouflage that perhaps they, they think it might in more of a jungle setting. Bond digs up this dead guy and reaches down and finds a heart-shaped locket, pops it open and inside is a microchip. So Bond just pockets the whole necklace and off he goes. And then the movie here sets a bar for unbelievable feats of daring do that our 60-year-old James Bond could clearly not accomplish. Um, starting with the Russian soldiers firing machine guns at James Bond and then a snow bridge that nature has made falls apart and Bond slips off the side of this cliff and he drops a good 150 feet 
feet down to the ground below, where his hips shatter and his kneecaps find themselves nestled next to his kidneys. Yeah, his hips are just directly under his armpits. It's the most exciting action sequence of the film, I think. Yeah, up until we get to the Temple of Doom. I would agree with that. Uh, see, I'm yeah, I'm not crazy. Anyway, we'll talk about <laughs> it when we get there. But yeah, it, it's pretty good. Like, uh, his stuntman <laughs> loses a ski due to gunfire and whatnot. Yeah, just like they did in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's very similar <laughs> to that up to a point. You get a lot of extreme skiing. It's like this Mountain Dew Xbox Extreme Nitro Blast commercial. All right, so here's a fun thing where Bond decides like, hey, I only got one ski. This is this ain't no good. You need at least two skis, darling. And so he hooks a rope like on a rock or some shit. And then on the back of a dude driving a snowmobile and he's like, don't get carried away, darling. And the guy gets yanked off or you know, whatever uh, he says. The stuntman jumps on the snowmobile and starts driving it. Yeah. And then a helicopter that is chasing him, uh, he has to, or the stuntman has to jump off the snowmobile because the helicopter blows it up Yeah, right away w- with a chain gun just and just blows the fuck out of the snowmobile. And James Bond or his stuntman is like, no worries, darling, and gets uh, the skid of the uh-huh. snowmobile and then just goes Sean White snowboarding mm-hmm. uh, through this whole sequence where like he even does a trick in some Russian dude's face like take that old man Bo you're you're leaving out the most important detail because as he snowboards down the side of this mountain we get to hear the Beach Boys sing California Girls yeah which my question for you is how much did you love this scene on a scale from I hated it to I fucking hated it yeah, you know me and the Beach Boys, Chad. This is this is the worst song of a shitty band. It it really tanks the scene in a way that it goes from I am really surprisingly engaged by this scene to can I just turn this movie off now? Now, according to the internet, which is almost never wrong, mm-hmm. all of the snowboard scenes in this particular action sequence were performed by Thomas Sims, who was the inventor of the snowboard. So at the time that this movie came out, snowboarding wasn't as commonly known as a sport as it is today. And so admittedly, watching this scene through present day perspective, it is unbearable to endure. But if you roll the calendar (laughs) back 35 years, this scene was a lot more innovative than modern audiences may give it. Because you're seeing a guy surf on snow plus as a kid you're like well if that old man can do it i certainly can certain movies just don't hold up over time you know like revenge of the nerds or birth of a nation (laughs) but the more problematic films yes he gets away from everybody but the helicopter but he shoots a flare into that and it explodes after filling up with smoke and stuff he shoots the flare into the helicopter that's right and then the helicopter crashes into the side of an ice mountain that's right which is how kobe bryant died oh that's sad was he working for the russians do you believe might have been maybe somebody shot a flare into his helicopter i don't know you know what let's just, you know what put that out on the internet the internet's rarely wrong say it's a q drop but yeah so after that blows up and, and bond is, is is stranded on this iceberg an iceberg kind of strolls up that is about as convincing as the seagull that we saw in goldfinger uh-huh and then a lid comes up on the iceberg and it's got the british flag on it yeah Yeah, nice union jack Uh uh-huh and it turns out that uh it's a submarine piloted by a sexy blonde lady 
Uh-huh. Kimberly Jones. Miss Jones. Me and Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Jones and me fucking in this fake submarine now. Oh, I see. I went the more soulful Mrs. Jones. And you <laughs> went with Adam Duritz. And and therein lies our difference. I'm a romantic. Bond goes inside the submarine. Mrs. Jones inside. She's like, mission accomplished. And he's like, darling, Baluva caviar, Russian vodka, quite shaken. And he's like trying to make this shit sound all fancy. He's holding up a bottle of Stoli, Bo. I used to find empties of that in the abandoned lot next to the Pizza Hut near my childhood home. That ain't fancy. You can't even break them bottles, Chad. And I've tried. They're all plastic now. And then Vaughn says, and one microchip. And he holds up the heart locket and Mrs. Jones like, oh, great. I'll, I'll let him know. And Vaughn says, darling, be a good girl and put it on automatic. We need a couple of glasses. And she's like, uh, they're in the upper head rack. And he's like, oh, I- I'm referring to my readers. I need them to make out the buckles on my boots. I can't get them off. My hands shake a bit when I haven't had my afternoon medicine. And as he's talking, he's like taking off his boots and showing off his old man and bird legs and shit when mrs jones comes close to the bed he hits the throttle which makes it lurch forward which unfortunately she can't find the canister of pepper spray that she hides up in the top bunk to keep this nasty handsy old man off of her yeah and he's immediately on top of her and is like darling before i stole the microchip i used a chewable i'll be ready for action any moment darling it's five days till we reach a Alaska, whatever will the two of us do? And so begins a new round of sexual assault in the Bond franchise. They're going to be in the submarine for five days? Look, man, I love my wife and we get along fine. You put us in the same car for 10 hours, we are ready to kill each other. I want to see the moment they popped open that hatch in Alaska where she just jumps out like that female skunk in a Pepe Le Pew cartoon. Just like, get away from me, you dirty old man. No, and I'm not going to cut your toenails. They're thick and yellow and they smell like Fritos. Just get the hell away from me. This place would be wall-to-wall cum. It would just be Bond, his little blue pills, and this woman being chased around a submarine like a continuous Benny Hill sketch. It would be a nightmare. I thought it would just be covered in blood, tears, and finger scratches. Oh, yeah. There would be some good old-fashioned Silence of the Lambs fingernails in the wall. Why is only half of his body here? I thought I could consume his whole corpse and there would be no evidence. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a platform. and just eating each other at a certain point. Except for the fact that I'm pregnant with his baby. Oh my God. What is going on in this movie? (laughs) It's all for you, Damien. So our movie finally begins with... Yeah, look... I fucking love this song. As I've watched these with my wife, numerous times she's looked at me and gone, that's from this movie? I'm like, yeah, there are so many great Bond songs. We'll talk about that later. But this is one of those ones, like you said, it hit number one yeah. on the US pop charts. That's amazing because this movie is awful. And I can't recommend the shitty video enough, which is <laughs> Duran Duran kind of hanging out and being spies at the Eiffel Tower while they cut in clips of the Mayday James Bond chasing that we'll get to in a bit. Uh And that's it. And it ends with, also there are some floating video cameras for some reason. And it ends with the lead singer of Duran Duran being asked who he is. And he says, Laban, Simon Laban. You can just keep on. It is awful. And I love everything about it. (laughs) 
I want to talk a little bit about the title of this movie. Before we even get to the title, Chad, it's telling that before we even see that title, it is just a lady unzipping her top and 007 is written across the valley of her cleavage. You have a problem with that? Again, it just lets you know how fucking dumb this movie's going to be. This is the mentality of a 13-year-old have at it, ladies and gentlemen. The title of this movie is Nonsense, Bo. Oh, absolutely. In the film, and we'll get to it, it is spoken, but as two separate lines of dialogue. That also don't make sense. No, not at all. It, the title of this movie is A View to a Kill. And as you noted in the intro, the original piece of literature was from quotes, A yes. View to a Kill, which is about an assassin, which I'm like, okay, that makes sense. As an assassin, you can go from a view to a kill. Mm-hmm. It kind of comes together. But in this movie, it's like a view to a kill. It's just a bunch of words that you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, view, kill, I got that. But then you're like, this don't make no sense. It's meaningless, which is the way I felt originally about Gabriel Garcia Marquez's novel, Love in the Time of Cholera, where sure, at first I was a little confused. But after I read the book, I understood metaphorically and literally what the author was trying to do by choosing that title, and even more so by understanding its meaning in Marquez's native Spanish, where the title is actually a pun, where cholera as a disease could also be interpreted as the feminine form of passion or human rage. That title makes sense. A View to a Kill is just confusion wrapped up in this cinematic turn of a movie. Yeah, doesn't make much of a chorus either. No, it's like at best it's postmodern absurdist. And they're like, yeah, that's what we were going for. The song along with the movie is utter nonsense and, and the title, but I'm okay with that. Like I'm okay with nonsense. If it can keep its, its head above the belt for long enough i'm okay with it another move they do with the songs in james bond movies is that they write another song and then they wedge in the title of the movie like the name of this song is dance into the fire parentheses a view to a kill mm-hmm. they did that shit with the spy who loved me where they just kind of you know it's like they're just singing along and then they're like octopussy like what what did they say <laughs> when did who did somebody step on something <laughs> what happened is that a is that a foreign word is it like Sun King by the Beatles? It's just that they slip into Italian? Our indoor blacklight mini golf course opening credits uh, finally end. Well, but here's my favorite moment in the credits is you have the lady. I think she starts off neon skiing and then Bond shoots her and she turns into ice. And it was like, I don't know what any of this is supposed to represent in terms of the song or the movie or whatever. But right. this is quintessential 1980s bullshit. Yeah, I think they just sort of described the opening sequence to them. And they're like, I got it. I got it. I don't tell you how to do your job. You let me paint up the girls with neon paint and film them with ski goggles. If you really edit it down, it could be a breath mint commercial. Yeah, it could be if the breath mints were so, like Playboy branded breath mints or something. Ah, nice. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, James Bond would love those. Yeah, he would always have one. But anyway, <laughs> so after the nonsense song is over, James Bond arrives at HQ and he, he's going to throw his hat maybe, which is a thing. But then there's a big Easter hat taken up the whole hat rack. It's Money Penny. She's going to the Kentucky Derby or something. She's 
going to the home. Old Lady Money Penny, uh, Lois Maxwell. I'm I'm sure is lovely lady and all that stuff, but she is old in this movie. Like Roger Moore yeah. is too, but Lois Maxwell. It looks old, old, old. She looks like your crazy aunt that thinks every day is her cat's birthday. Yeah. So she shows up in the movie to remind us of the ravages of time and uh-huh. then ushers Bond in, into the office where Q is dicking around with some remote controlled robot thing that looks like a big gray roach. Q, speaking of old people, he's like a hundred. He makes it through two more bonds, Chad. I know. We'll get to that. Yeah, he's in there dicking around with this remote control thing. And it turns out that the chip that Bond recovered is identical to this chip that is made by a company recently acquired by Zorin, who you should not confuse with Zoran which right. is a real world company during this exposition bond looks really confused first off because he's trying to figure out if that robot is a dog or a cockroach and if it whether or not it's really alive and if he can fuck it <laughs> one question q uh are there any holes maybe a port on the back darling something thin and reedy might find its way in there Q says during this conversation, all microchips are susceptible to the electromagnetic pulses of nuclear explosions. Which I was like, whoa, 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 Q, slow down. I think that everything is susceptible to everything of a nuclear explosion. You don't need to split hairs over microchips and electromagnetic pulses, you know? And then Bond jumps in. He's like, oh, you see, Minister, if, if a nuclear weapon were to go off in space, anything with a microchip in it, the modern day to or perhaps our defense system would be rendered useless in making toast or bagels or even, God forbid, delicious Eggo brand frozen waffles. They say that this chip that Bond recovered, it's identical to one made by this company that's recently acquired by the Zorn Company, as we said. Bond then is like, maybe this Max Zorn character might be involved. And M immediately is like, don't be so fucking stupid, 007. Zorin is a staunch anti-communist. And he's just like, whoa, easy. Who? Somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed, am I right, everyone? Wait a minute, 007. Zorin? He's the movie's bad guy. This is preposterous. He's a French nationalist, all right? His name is Max Zorin. There's nothing villainous about that name at all. Now, get out of this room before I strike you hither. <laughs> and the other dude who's in the room is like, hey, we've already invo- launched this an investigation into Max Zorin, so don't even worry about it because we're ahead of you no matter what your buddy M says. And uh, then M is like, Bond, you have 37 minutes to get properly dressed. No, darling, where, where are we going? 37 minutes. Are we going to a strip club or, or perhaps a bingo hall? I enjoy bingo. By the way, is it is it cold in here? I feel a bit of a chill. Do you have a sweater I could put on? I heard there's a soup festival in town. Perhaps we can swing by there. Could you turn on the weather channel? I'm very oh so interested in the weather. Not only here, but around the world. Em, I don't want to alarm you, but I think I saw some black gentlemen outside the building. I didn't like the looks of them. <laughs> So we cut to a horse race. Yeah, the whole team has an outing at a racetrack right. because they want to hang out with unemployable degenerates and day-drinking jackasses. I don't know why every James Bond movie has to go to some bullshit I don't care about, whether it's golfing, now we're going to horse racing. Genealogy. Right, genealogy. <laughs> like, in the next movie, I, I am sure that like James Bond is going to go to a probate hearing for 45 <laughs> minutes of a movie, and i got to sit through that shit too <laughs> did you catch the name of the racetrack that they go to it's called ascot Racecourse. 
<laughs> there was at the end of the movie in the special thinks there's an ascot company that uh-huh. they think and i thought yeah. that was quite funny as well i don't know that there is a more perfect name for a racetrack other than ascot race course except for maybe cufflink meadows or hemophilia park hook nose grounds i once went with my uh, aunt's father-in-law the one with the penis pump and the gun and the glove box of his car I'm we went to nepotism downs one time and uh, that was a good day yeah i think trump bought that one percenter racing center i'm done that's all i can think of while money penny and and the other dude are actually watching the race because money pennies puts money on a horse money penny's got a problem money penny has made a lot of bad decisions and is now <laughs> reaching at the age where she's about to retire and she has to live with him like she's never been married she always waited for james bond that fucked up that blew up in her face she's never had a real relationship so now she's retiring to do what i mean she's being forced out of government service she's got nothing she'll probably be dead in three years <laughs> by her own hands right or just waste away because she's got nothing to live for she's got nothing to do you know there's no family so to speak sad of. i look this is my read on money penny as a whole <laughs> through this series and i think it's very sad you should write that book you know how like they did that twilight series and then they wrote it from the dude vampire point of view and then they did the 50 shades of gray series and they wrote it from the point of view of the guy who whips the shit out of that woman and fucks her like that would be good to see the james bond series from money penny's point of view call it money penny tomorrow comes regardless how about money penny tomorrow never comes eventually that'll be the last book like you gotta make it a series chad you gotta do the first book is the story of her uh, moving into the condo and realizing that no matter how many she, times she complains to her neighbor to keep the TV down when it's CSI time, <laughs> they're not gonna. They're never gonna. Uh, then book two, <laughs> Chad. That's book one. Like, you don't want to blow your wad. Book two, of course, is where the guy next door who kept her up during CSI time dies suddenly. And the smell just slowly. And it makes her realize that no one's ever going to know when she dies. So the book is really about her pursuit to find a way to find fail saves so that when she does eventually die, that somebody finds the body before it really starts to smell up the place. She's dropping hints to Q like... Q, if if a, an agent were to be killed out in the field, would there be any sort of technology that would alert, I don't know, his sister's nephew to let him know that he was in a spot of trouble? And also, is there any sort of spray you could put on that agent's body to keep all of his cats from eating him? Well, we have a spinster pill, but... I'll take it. Used it on one of his birds, I understand. Bond looks up through his binoculars, and here we get to see Max Zorin for the very first time, as played by Academy Award-winning actor Christopher Walken, who took home an Oscar six years before this movie came out as a supporting actor in The Deer Hunter. Which, my question for you, Bo, is, do you want to play a game? Of course I do, Chad. Wonderful. I don't have any prizes to hand out, so this is just going to be a game for fun. I'm going to name an actor who was awarded an Oscar and also appeared in a James Bond movie, and I want you to tell me what movie that actor appeared in to award them that Academy Award. Okay. I was more worried you were going to ask me what Bond movie they appeared in. Oh, no, no, no. I know you don't know the answer to that. So if I were to say Christopher Walken, you would say? Deer Hunter. Right. I just gave you that answer. I'm not, I don't have a lot of confidence in you doing well in this. So here right, we go. Fair enough. Sean Connery. Mm, a Lion in Winter? Mm, no. The Untouchables. Oh, shit. Of course. Yeah. Benicio Del Toro? Traffic? Correct. Okay. Judy Dench? Mm. 
Let me give you a hint. Yeah. She did not deserve this Oscar. It's bullshit. Uh, oh, Shakespeare in Love. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Halle Berry. Uh, the, the one with Billy Bob Thornton. Um, it's not Monster. It's something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're so close. Billy Bob Thornton has two of these. They sit below his penis. Oh, Monster's Ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think the two of them really had sex in that movie? I hope so. I do, too. I think they did. I am always, anytime I see two pretty people in a movie simulating fucking, I'm like, Uh, just do it. Just fuck. You will enjoy it. We'll enjoy it as an audience. You're beautiful people. This should be captured on film. Javier Bardem. Oh, uh, No Country for Old Men. And lastly, Christopher Waltz. Something Bastards. Uh, so close. I know. It's the, like I can tell you everything about it. Tarantino, Eli Roth played the Bear Jew. It was intentionally misspelled. Fuck. I'm completely blanking on ear. ear, ear in, in glo- Inglorious in, Bastards. Okay, there you sorry. go. Oh. And he also won it for Django Unchained. Sure. Yeah. I don't have faith in me. What are you talking about? <laughs> aside from you know just some good old-fashioned brain farts i knew those answers i could have passed that test so good job thanks i'll email you your prize it's just gonna be a thumbs up um, <laughs> it's a dick pic again <laughs> bond looks up and we see max zorin who is played by christopher walken in a top hat and everything it looks great his hair is fantastic everything about walking in this is great he's got these kind of tinted aviator sunglasses he's wearing all the time this bleach blonde hair he's always dressed like he's about to go to like a fancy ball it's uh, glorious i think that max zorin may be the greatest bond villain of all time he's not in it enough for my money, but maybe like you could do the whole movie about Max Oren and I'm into it again. Walken's a great actor and he makes really interesting choices with this villain that does make him a, an incredibly compelling villain. So Christopher Zorin, he's up in the grandstands and uh, I'm going to refer to him as Zorin instead of Zoran because pick six movies does not want to get sued by any 1980s microchip producing company. We cut back and M is standing by bond and M says, our movie's bad guy, Christopher Zorin, he escaped Germany in the 60s and he speaks French and a bunch of other languages and he made his fortune in gas and oil and now he races horses and he makes computer chips and he also carries a cane with a fancy button on top, but I'm sure that has no bearing on the plot of our movie. In fact, forget that I even mentioned it, Bond. Harumph, harumph, harumph. At this point, Bond says, darling, who is that strikingly statuesque black woman dressed in what appears to be a red toga with a tall black chef's hat and cheekbones that could cut through glass zoran's girlfriend perhaps and him's like no bond that's mayday she's the henchman of our movie she's like odd job but she's black oh you mean like che che and on her majesty's secret service no she's shorter than che che oh so you mean like knickknack in the man with the golden gun no if she was that short bond everyone around her would be that short look through your binoculars you damn fool but she is a woman Oh, so she's like pussy galore. No! Irma Butt. No! Her name's Mayday! Do you remember when I fought that rather tall man with metal teeth named Jaws? He turned out to be my friend in Moonraker. He fell in love with a girl with glasses. And she had pigtails. I tried to have sex with her, but I failed. You know, there was a movie called Jaws about a shark. It was quite popular. They made a sequel, but it wasn't nearly as good as the original. Focus Bond! Sorry, sometimes I do tend to wander, don't I? When did we get to a racetrack? 
Is it cold in here? We're outside, Bong. I need a shawl. Would you care for a Werther's candy? I keep them in my pocket in case I meet children. Em, I have to ask you, who is that striking black lady? It's Money Penny. Really? Hmm, mm, I could have had sex with her. You idiot. You know, someone hired an old woman to do Money Penny's job. <laughs> Money Penny's a young, beautiful woman, not that old hag. Just like me. Vital. <laughs> Young. She looks like me, but wearing a big floppy pink hat, but with less wrinkles. <laughs> so, after all this is done, we go to find uh, Patrick McNee, who uh, we know from The Avengers, the the original series, uh-huh. uh, and also the movie as... We also didn't see him in The Avengers movie adaptation, because he was the Invisible Man. Oh, God, that movie is so dumb. But he, in this, he plays <laughs> Sir Godfrey Tibbet, who is a horse trainer slash spy, I guess. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a horse run a furlong that fast. I never have. That bastard's cheating. And while he's complaining about this, like, meanwhile, they're handing Zorin this giant trophy for winning. Dude, that horse Pegasus starts losing its shit and bucking all over the place. And Mayday, Grace Jones, she steps in, grabs those horses' reins, and does this equivalent of, like, the horse whisperer. But she gets up in this horse's face and she's like, you better quit fucking embarrassing me putting all these goddamn people right now, motherfucker. And this horse is like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, I'll cut this shit out, sorry. She's like the, like the horse grumbler. I'm gonna fucking cut off your dick and I'll stick it straight in your- I'm gonna kick your stomach so hard, blood's gonna squirt out of every hole in your body, you- fucking slimy piece of shit <laughs> and then bond is like we might need to look into that and tibbet is like no 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 there's already a detective looking into it you don't need to fuck with this i've got a detective friend of mine i do he's trying to figure out how that horse runs so fast he does bond's like maybe i should have a talk with him you know i'm a super spy on his way out like uh, money penny lost and, and i'm sure is in deep with the mob like the vig's running yeah they're gonna take her thumbs tommy yeah and on his way out bond is like here you are old lady if you see money penny give this to her and it's a winning race ticket <laughs> maybe you could get a boob job maybe a facelift can't say it'll help but it won't hurt I like how Money Penny goes, Pegasus, he bet on the winning horse. That James Bond can do everything except fulfill my womanly needs. (laughs) And pee standing up. We cut to France (laughs) in the 1980s where we see the Eiffel Tower where using this particular stock of film and when you see the clothing of all the people being tourists nearby, I always find myself on the lookout for Superman to see if he's there to save the day. Unfortunately, uh, he's not. We we no. instead go to this crazy club where James Bond and a guy with the most Frenchiest mustache I've ever seen in my life are tasting champagnes. Bo, this is a real restaurant. This is the Jules Verne restaurant in the Eiffel Tower. And Doc Brown's kids in Back to the Future 3 were named Jules and Vern. And at the end of Back to the Future 3, when Doc Brown is saying his final farewell to Marty McFly and Jennifer, and Jennifer inquires uh, to Doc about what he means when he says that nobody's future is written, Doc Brown's son, Vern, the younger of the two, he makes a fist near his crotch, and then he extends all four of his fingers and waves them back in a beckoning motion. And then he sticks out his index finger and he taps the top of his dick that's an american classic once you see it you can never unsee it and it pretty much ruins this touching farewell uh for the greatest time travel trilogy in cinematic history (laughs) what i'm saying is doc brown's son is probably a sexual predator traveling through time i'd see that movie aka james bond and the time machine 
do you remember when I pitched that movie to you about the guys who invent the time machine and they go back in time to kill Hitler, but they get there and he's like a four-year-old kid. So they have to like figure out, oh my gosh, should we kill a child or not? And one of the guys gets this lady pregnant and she's going to be his grandpa. And the name of the movie is Back to the Fuhrer. No, I vaguely remember the setup. I don't remember Back to the Fuhrer. I know who I would put in the the lead role. Vern from Back to the Future 3, tapping his dick, pervert. That is a movie that would be directed by Gary Busey. Or that guy that did that human centipede (laughs) abomination. Tom Six, yeah. So Bond's eating with this detective, who's super Frenchy. His name is Aubergine. It is important that we note what the fucking floor show of this place is dude you start a floor show in any restaurant i am out you can take whatever the hell all of this is go back to where you found it and leave it there and better yet if there's going to be audience participation which let's be honest there will i don't want none of that shit either it is a woman standing on stage in like like a judy davis kind of flowing gown kind of thing it ain't sexy no 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 and she is just whistling uh-huh while guys in black outfits off to the sides use fishing poles to flutter butterflies around her that wasn't my read on it my thought was that she was just whistling and a fan blew paper butterflies up and then mayday shows up to bust up the joint and cause a little mayhem no because she, she knocks out the guy like she is posing as one of the fishing pole people Clearly, I wasn't paying attention. Apologies all around. While Bond is talking to this guy, Aubergine. Who tells him, I have information on Christopher Zorin. He he will be having a horse show sometime soon or something like that. Yeah, he also says, there are no records of Zorin before East Germany. Mm -hmm. How you say he is uh, an experiment? Hmm? A uh, genetic uh, laboratory result? He was probably born somewhere one, two, maybe three years after World War II. I don't know if there is a connection between that or not. If you see any uh, German scientists, uh, you might ask them, hey, did you grow a supervillain? And if (laughs) they say yes, I assume that is your man. Also, James Bond, this woman up here whistling near the butterflies. Maybe you and I should try to have sex with her. And you're like, what? Right? And then he says, I will solve this mystery. Or oh, my name isn't Achille Arrangie. Thunk. And then he right, gets hooked in the neck by this butterfly hook and then immediately dies. Uh-huh. Uh, and then Bond checks it out. Oh, yes, he's quite dead. And then he gives chase, a.k.a. his stuntman chases after Grace Jones. I certainly couldn't chase after someone that fast. Do you have someone that's perhaps a bit slower? Someone who's maybe on roller skates. There's a lot of stairs in here. I could certainly catch up with them quickly. (laughs) That rock is too big. I could lift a smaller one. (laughs) (laughs) I have that joke later. All right. God bless Bill Murray. Uh, (laughs) But so James Bond shoots at Mayday, chasing her up the Eiffel Tower. He has no regard for human safety. Oh, no. Shooting his gun at a giant metal structure with a lot of angles is just asking for some eight-year-old kid to get hit in the chest by a ricochet but you know the mi6 <laughs> covers shit like that up all the time mayday grace jones she uses her fly fishing prowess to cast her line which whips down and ties up james bond's legs and she learned this skill during her time being raised near the blackfoot river in montana because eventually all things merge into one and a river runs through it <laughs> yeah. she's haunted by waters, Bo. 
Uh, I'm I'm haunted by literature. As, as he's chasing her up the Eiffel Tower, Grace Jones uh, just like swan dives off the top of the tower and pulls the chute while James Bond watches with this expression that's just like, oh, I never thought that would happen. And he just gets an elevator down. <laughs> His stunt double jumps on top of a descending elevator. It, t- it takes him down to the ground level where James Bond goes over and steals a taxi cab from this cartoonish Frenchman who I believe is eating a baguette, drinking rind while wearing a beret, while at the same time smoking and laughing himself about the comedy stylings of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> and he's yeah. also subconsciously hating Americans. Right. All of those things. It is ridiculous. He's like, oh, oh, oh what are you doing? What are you, some kind of super spy? <laughs> and James Bond is just like, sorry, old boy. And, you know, knocks the guy out, steals his cab. We get some real classic Roger Moore era James Bond action adventure hijinks here. This is the stuff that I'm kind of on board for. He's basically following Mayday, who is floating down to Earth. Uh-huh. in this car and as he does so he like goes under a truck or some shit and the top gets shaved off he jumps over a ramp on top of a bus next to some boats the car gets decapitated mm-hmm. he goes backwards down some stairs at one point he gets t-boned across the back end of the car which splits the car in two which first off look that's not how cars work nope. Okay, but, you know, Counselor, it's a James Bond movie. I'll allow it. But the whole thing feels like it's out of the Muppet movie. No, he arrives at this bridge in a quarter of a car that is just, it is literally the front end and the front seat. Then he sees uh, Mayday land on a wedding barge on the Seine. Uh And Bond is like, maybe I'll crash the party, darling. And (laughs) so he jumps from the bridge onto the boat, lands on the cake. It's like James Bond on your wedding day. It's an old man trying to get laid. So once again, shattering his tibia. Oh, darling. Oh, darling. I believe I've got a compound fracture. That's what I like to call a boner. (laughs) You should probably call the a hospital and send someone. Too sweet, love. Give 911 a poke, would you? Grace Jones jumps on this small speedboat that's beside the wedding barge, and it's being driven by uh, Christopher Zorin. And we get to hear him speak for the first time when he looks over at Mayday Grace Jones, and he says, So, did you do it? Did you use those fly fishing skills that your Presbyterian minister father taught you? And your brother Paul, who died tragically, found beaten in an alleyway? I know your brother Paul, he was your father's favorite, and it's a sensitive subject, but perhaps it could be turned into a semi-autobiographical short story. Adapted for the big screen by acclaimed actor and soon-to-be-director Robert Redford. It's thought I had. What can I say? I love literature. And and so he and Mayday just cackle at their dastardly victory. It's a real, <laughs> you know, fa- uh, mustache twirling kind of moment. Was that their plan? Here's the plan. Go into the Jules Verne restaurant. You gotta stab the detective in the neck with a butterfly. Climb up to the top. You're gonna base jump off the Eiffel Tower. And just make your way over to the river. And I'll pick you up. Where will you be? I'm gonna moor the boat uh, right next to a wedding party. Uh, Maybe I'll get some cake, maybe not. But I'll be there when you show up. (laughs) How will I know which wedding party? Oh, I don't know. Uh, There's probably one, maybe two. I'd check both. (laughs) Worst case scenario, maybe you get a couple of apps, a plate, uh, some pretzels. 
something delicious. If you get confused, just look for the sheen of my hair. It's bright yellow. It's going to look like a tiny sun amidst the muck and filth of this horrible country. By the way, I'm a Nazi. Look, I'm going to wait till two. If you're not at the wedding boat by 2 p.m., look, I I got a movie to get to. Best of luck. I'll catch up with you later. It's going to be a double feature. It's a movie called Back to the Future, as well as Beverly Hills Cop is still in theaters. It came out in 84, but it was that popular. I love Judge Reinhold. There's something about him. He's brilliant and quiet. (laughs) We cut over to M, who has given Bond the business for breaking Paris. Yeah, he and Tibbet bail him out of jail. Because, what, your license to kill allows you to, what, commit any crime in any nation anywhere? Diplomatic immunity. (laughs) And so he has Tibbet, listen, Sir Godfrey, I need an inn at that stud auction. And Tibbet is like, oh, I think we can squeeze you in, governor? And then we immediately cut to Vaughn arriving at Zoran's estate in disguise mm-hmm. as Mr. Sinjin Smythe. This is a real Joey Jojo Shabadoo moment. <laughs> yeah. They're like, what is your name? And he goes, oh, oh, darling, my name, it's James St. James Smythe Sinjin, Jin Sinjin, Sun John. I like the fact that it is the most English sounding name that you've ever heard in your life. And then, uh, and Patrick McNee as Tibbet is playing his valet, like his uh, personal man. And mm-hmm. so uh, a guy named Scarpine, who's the head of the security for Zorin, mm-hmm. greets him and is escorting him to the palatial main stables. We also get to meet Pan Ho, one of our female henchwomen, which I don't know how you can get more on the nose for an insulting female Asian woman in a James Bond film. And she does nothing in this movie. She just yeah. happens to be in some of the scenes. She's there to make Jenny Flex look good. Right. Or she's there to make Jenny Flex look relevant. Yeah. And so on the way to the, the stables, they they find this. It, it's basically a dirt pit in which the, the horses are kind of led around. Uh-huh. And the, the chief there uh, of, of security is like, you know, oh, Pegasus brother is going to go on sale. It's going to make three or it's easily going to fetch three million dollars. And Bond is like, oh, well, that sounds quite reasonable. While he's chit chatting with Scarpine, Tibbet is uh-huh. outside and he sees this Pegasus horse being unloaded, acting all squirrely again. And so he sees Dr. Carl Mortner, who looks like an old Nazi because he is an old Nazi. Yeah. He's Dr. Nazi, Bo. Yeah. He, he's a very like, get this horse off the back of the truck, get it into the lab. He's got this thinning long white hair and he wears a monocle. Right. <laughs> I mean, he might as well be ordering somebody to go after Moose and Squirrel. Yeah. So once all the handlers leave, Tibbet investigates and surprise, surprise, Pegasus is gone from his stable, from uh, from his stall, just missing. Then we reconnect Tibbet and Bond, who are going up to uh, be, be shown his room. And the whole time, Bond is just treating Tibbet like human shit. Yeah. Where he's just like, come on, Tibbet, don't make me strike you across the face again, darling. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir. 
And so they're greeted by Jenny Flex, as you mentioned, who is uh, the blonde girl from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I believe. Oh, is that her? Yeah. And he, she says, my name is Jenny Flex. And Bond goes, of course you are. And, she's disgusting. I, right. Also, she's like, um, look, we've got a lot of stairs. Do you want something on the first floor? Because I don't know how you get up and down. Uh, maybe you want something close to the door, close to the kitchen. Garden view, yeah. pool view, something near the buffet. Blue plate special is from two to five if you're interested. Roger Moore's James Bond is just 80% looking for some strange, 18% confused, and 2% spy work. There's a lot of just happening into shit here. Most of the yeah. other people, and, and I think this is just generally my experience with these movies, is that James Bond is just not a very good spy at all. I, and this, there's another great moment in, in this movie where James Bond, much like uh, Honor Majesty's Secrets, or, or no, in Goldfinger, it was when Bond was like, you know, well, if you kill me, they're just going to send another. Once again, we have a villain that's just like, maybe he'll do better. You're shit. And <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> jumping ahead a little bit. But so Jenny takes Bond to his room uh, as, as he continues to treat Tibbet terribly. And make sexual innuendos about his dick getting hard. But as soon as they leave, if I were a Tibbet, as soon as that door was closed, I would kick Bond in that hard dick of his. Just like, I don't care what front we have, what cover we're, we're uh, perpetrating here. You do not speak to me like that, sir. On their way to the room, Bond sees Mayday Grace Jones, and she catches his eye, and he's like, Mmm, darling, I'd like to dip my wick in your chocolate sweetness. And he's like, I'll be knocking on your door a little bit later good looking you must never tell my mother she wouldn't understand <laughs> so she grew up in a different time darling i remember watching family feud with richard dawson with my grandmother and whenever he would kiss black women she was beside herself <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Remember when you told your grandmother that I was gay and that my boyfriend was black and she wouldn't allow me back in the house? Yeah, that, there was a little bit of covering up some pot smoking <laughs> that went along with that too, so. It belongs to Chad's black boyfriend. Yeah, all right, <laughs> You talk to him. I can't. I can't do anything with that guy. <laughs> I remember coming over to your grandmother's house and her just treat me like shit. Like, what's going on with your grandma? Like, ah, she thinks you're gay and you have a black boyfriend. I was like, oh, well, that explains it. Yeah. Sometimes I told her crazy shit, but she also believed. Uh, she was one of those people that believed that like dinosaurs were God's greatest trick. <laughs> you know, she was one of them. So I, I felt like, hey, if you want to believe in crazy shit, I'll offer some up myself. <laughs> So Bond and Tibbet are hanging out inside and Tibbet's doing everything he can to not kick Bond and his semi-hard old man dick. And they're still bickering with one another. And then Bond pulls out a tape recorder and hits play. And you get to hear a continuation of the conversation where James Bond is treating Tibbet like shit, which I want to see the outtake footage where these two men recorded this conversation in preparation for this particular moment. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if it was just Roger Moore reading like, you know, bathroom joke books. Tibbet, you're just a vile piece of shit. Yes, sir. Tibbet, your mother was a syphilitic prostitute. Tibbet, when your mother sits around the house, she really sits around the house. What do you think of that one? Hmm? Tibbet, what's it like being poor? <laughs> do you just stand on a street corner on your day off and 
beg for more money from other poor people? Do you all get together and just discuss how poor you are? Is it a party? I mean, you can't bring anything because everyone's so poor. Well, they're being sneaky with this tape recorder of theirs. Yeah, it's a real Ferris Bueller move. It is 100% a Ferris Bueller move, <laughs> which, which comes up again later. They go out to the patio, and Tibbet is like, There's a disappearing horse, sir. Moore is just like, hmm... Who's that tall drink of water? And he's like, that's Max Zorn, sir. And he's like, no, no, the blonde. And he's like, that's Max Zorn, sir. No, no, the one with the boobs. That's Max Zorn, sir. So he just sees like Tanya Roberts as Stacy Sutton arriving uh, in a helicopter and being greeted by Zorin and then kind of taken in the building. Tibbet, I'm I'm going to go down there and try to have sex with that woman who's 18, maybe. What's a year or two, my good man? <laughs> Guess who just went from six o'clock to six forty five? Stacey Sutton, um, as you noted, is played by Tanya Roberts, who was 30 years old when this movie was made. And I read that Roger Moore was quite surprised to hear that he was older than her mother when this movie was being filmed. Yeah, I don't know why he was surprised by that, but that all makes sense. So, would you like to invite her as well, darling? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, gross! And your balls are covered in weird spots! Your nuts look like that! That Horton sat on! And no, I'm not gonna play the part of Horton in your sick Dr. Seuss fantasies! I don't hear a who, darling. I hear a why. There's a reception a little bit later, and Bond is sneaking around doing his spy shit at the at this party. You call it spy shit. I call it an old man on the fringe of senility just wandering around a mansion. And Mayday sees him, and she's like, hey, old man, get back outside. He's like, oh, oh, oh darling, uh, I need to go to the bathroom. When you get to be my age, you, you have to urinate more frequently. I wear undergarments just to protect myself in case I have a, a, a moment of lapse. I don't want to soil my pants they're linen while he's outside chad he's got the like totally sneaky spy branded sunglasses on that have like these big ass handles on them like an optograb that allows him to zoom in why don't we have the scene where q comes in and says pay attention bond where he explains all of his gadgets none of that shit happens i saw these glasses and i was like maybe they help with his glaucoma so he can drive at night i don't know that this is a gadget as much as this is something he picked up at a gas station along the drive do you think he was just looking in the window and the glare was too much for his old man eyes so he grabbed some woman's glasses put them on and was like oh darling <laughs> i can see through here fantastic if i look off in the distance i can see the rain falling from the clouds these glasses are magical while he's looking through the window using his back of the comic book x-ray specs he sees zoran write tanya roberts a check and hand it to her and after uh -huh. he sees this that scarpine guy shows up and it's like hey move it along move it along and he's like, oh sorry we don't like the old people hanging out here it kind of depresses all the guests how about you maybe you go back to your room take a nap you come back for the auction it'll be fine i'll call the help they'll come up and pour you an epsom salt bath it's gonna be good for your skin you got a lot of liver spots you should probably talk to a doctor about that so then james bond uh sneaks into zoran's office after uh -huh. after he sees zoran and tanya roberts leave and he uses this gadget uh, to create a carbon copy of the check that Zorn was writing, which it turns out, make it out to cash, yeah. was made out to Tanya Roberts for $5 million. And outside, uh, some dude as Zorin talks to him about the main strike. It, it, this comes up for the first time where he's like, uh, is main strike all set? 
And Zorn is just like, we're going to know after the 22nd. You knew that. Quit bothering me. It's a potty. Then Bond sneaks out, like <laughs> uh, creeps out of the, the office and runs straight into Dr. Nazi. You there? What are you up to? And Bond is just like, oh, darling, I was just looking for a drink. And Dr. Nazi is like, good. Come with me. We will drink. We will celebrate the great clone work I have been doing. And he's like, clone work, you say? And they, they go to the, the bar, and it turns out that the dude that was with Zorn is this guy named Conway. The one stupid American in this movie. Right. He sounds overdubbed. I don't know if that's the case, but it, that's what it sounds like. I'm an oil man from Texas. It's, it is the Simpsons oil guy just shooting pistols. He sees Dr. Nazi, and he says, what's up, Doc? <laughs> Yeah, and so he is handling Zorin's oil interests stateside. Is that how people from Europe see Americans in the 1980s? I think that was a generous perception then, and it's only gotten worse now. You think they just imagine us as being a nation of people bent over our giant fat stomachs with our heads between our legs and somehow stuck up our asses? Absolutely they do. Quite <laughs> rightly, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I talk to a guy in Scotland on the regular who will just start conversations with, the fuck is wrong with your country? I don't know. I don't know. Our Texas oil man, Connolly, he says, See here, I handle Christopher Zorin's oil interest. Yeehaw! And then we cut to Zorin, and he's over there talking to this guy dressed up as an Arabian sheik for Halloween. And Connolly and his mistress, they kind of fuck off. Well, and Bond's taking pictures with his little ring camera the whole time. where he's Oh, just yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I forgot about hey, that. Hey, would you mind looking into my index finger, darling? Right. You know that because you paid attention. What I need is that scene at the beginning where he's like, pay attention, Bond. This ring takes pictures. This doohickey scans checks for $5 million made out to cash. These glasses make you look like an old woman. Yeah, I, I'm kind of cool with, eh, he's just got the thing he needs. I don't care. It goes with the vibe of i think these more movies where it's just like eh, just keep it moving we don't eh, don't worry about how it how it happened just keep it moving this old doctor nazi says he's a doctor and bond's like really you're a medical doctor does this growth on my hand give you pause for concern and doctor nazi's like i'm a breathing consultant and bond says how do you succeed with breeding inferior bloodlines and then the, the doctor is like like it's, it's you have to have the important conditions and desire to take over the world and bond's like Darling, are you talking about taking over people? Are we talking about breeding horses? You're kind of going off the rails a bit. And then Dr. Nazi says, Both! I'm talking about both! Horses and people! My science applies to both equally! You have good genes! You know that, right? You have good genes. A lot of it is about genes, isn't it? Don't you believe? The racehorse theory! You think we're so different? That last one was a quote from Donald Trump at his rally on September 2nd, 2020. Eugenics is always nice. Yeah, it is just like, look at you. Look how beautiful you are as a specimen. You are old and broken, but look how good you were in your prime. We could harvest you. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you celebrate the Christmas or the other holiday? <laughs> are you Christian about, or other? About this time, Christopher Zorn, he strolls over and he says, allow me. To introduce myself, my name is Zorin, uh, pronounced with an Orin. And yes, ladies, I can always put some more in. I'm also a big fan of, of, of digital underground. 
I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom. I could do the whole thing. If you want, we'll do same song. I don't give a shit. All of Shot G's work is Christopher Walken. <laughs> that should be the B side of our Satchmo sings the theme songs of Spike Lee. And then our B side of that is you doing Digital Underground track to track. All right. Stop what you're doing. Because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you used to. I look funny, but yo, <laughs> I'm making money, see? So, yo, well, get ready for me. Christopher Zorn says, Dr. Nazi, you want it in the stables or somewhere that's not in the scene, so beat it. So Dr. Nazi, he leaves to go create a master horse race for a master horse race. James Bond says, darling, your house is beautiful, especially your office, where I've never been. And Christopher Zorn says, it was built by a duke who was crazy and thought he would be reincarnated as a horse. Have you been interested in thoroughbreds for long, Mr. Sinjin, Sinjin, Jinjin, Twinjin, Kayantanzin? Your name sounds like a bad spice. Bud says, oh, no, my aunt left me some stables and I thought it would be fun to breed. Honestly, I was hoping a woman would ask me that question. I've been sitting on that zinger all day. Do you ride often? Again, a question primarily intended for the fairer sex. <laughs> His delivery of, of this line, when he says, I'm happiest in the saddle. Mm, chef's kiss you know like it's just walking <laughs> doing that thing where, like as he says in many interviews like he takes out punctuation and all the scripts he gets and he just says shit the way he says it I'm happiest <laughs> in the saddle whipping an animal making it sweat blow snot from its nose this guy he knows what i like there's nothing like feeling a ton between your legs and hitting it with a stick bond finally is like how do you feel about fly fishing, Mr. Zorin? And immediately, Walken is just like, oh, you know, all right. Excuse me, Mr. Bond. I'm getting uncomfortable. And he excuses himself. And then Bond just grabs some loose champagne. Sure, it's free. And finds Tanya Roberts on the bridge. And he's just like, say, could I interest you in getting intoxicated and letting an older man lie on top of you? He says to her, darling, I'm James Sinjin Sminjin Sinjin. I'm English. And Stacy says to him, mm, really? I never would have guessed. And then Bond says, really? Which I can't determine whether or not he's trying to ascertain if she's being sarcastic or she's sincerely stupid. I think mostly the latter, given what happens in this movie. When he makes her dinner? Yes. That's the nail in the coffin that she's just an idiot. But Bond asks her here, are you buying or are you selling? Which I'm like, hey man, that's a line you use with a prostitute to determine if she's an undercover cop. Right. And, and she goes, selling? And he says, horses, my dear girl. And meanwhile, across the way... I'm not interested in horses. Zorin is watching them talk, and he just leans over to Mayday, and he goes, Get him away from her. It's, again, <laughs> perfect. He's got that old man smell. It's like an unholy union of Barbasol, Old Spice, and Rita's Digest. Look, I'm thinking that maybe later I'm going to have sex with her, and I don't go Eskimo Brothers with James Bond. That's just villain code. And he hits on <laughs> Tanya Roberts until she is literally dragged away by Mayday. Then as they're leaving, Mayday says, you know, 
I'll see to your needs, Mr. Bond. And he says, oh, you'll see to my loneliness personally, will you? But fortunately, both Grace Jones and Tanya Roberts are young and fast and get away from him. Darling, as you're running away, that was meant to imply that we would have sex. Interracial sex! <laughs> Most people my age are uncomfortable with that, but not me! As long as you're on top, my knee on this side is due to be replaced in the fall! My friend Al Gore is inventing a system called the Internet. I'd like to introduce you to agegaplovers.com. I think you'll be quite intrigued. We cut to Dr. Nazi down in the horse stables, and Tibbet follows Dr. Nazi, and it turns out that Dr. Nazi just disappears the way Pegasus the horse did earlier. And then Bond pops out of another stall with a will, Yoo-hoo, Tibbet, it's me. And this is where you get the cutaway that's the real Ferris Bueller moment, where some guards are like, hey, check on that Sinjin Smithson guy. And they cut to his room. And it's just audio, and they kind of flip it on, and it's just... And they're just like, all right, he's asleep. And it's just a total tape recorder. Like if somebody knocked on the door, he would just, hello? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't come to the door right now. It is a scream. Oh, what? Thank you. Just leave it outside. I'll pick it up later. But some other guards who are patrolling are like, hey, these stable doors are open. You mean doing their job? Yeah, right. And meanwhile, they go down into uh, this underground lair where a Bond has to kind of crack open this safe, where inside they find these vials. And Bond figures out that, you know, oh, they're implanting microchips in horses. And they use a whip or a cane like... Zorin had to release an injection during the race to overcome horse fatigue. Based on what? He just makes this shit up. That makes as much sense as they're microchips that make the horses suddenly re have a religious epiphany that like inspires them to go faster. It's all equally nonsensical. And then we see these guards who are on patrol taking the elevator down into this secret lab and Bond and Tibbet are like, cheese it, it's the cops. And so they hit the lights and they go through this other door into a deeper part of the facility where there are like, what I associate like, like those wooden rifle cases that you see in old cavalry movies and shit, only they're full yeah. of microchips. And on this big conveyor belt where this machine is strapping the lids on them. These two thugs that come in to beat up James Bond and his old butler sidekick. If, first off, it wouldn't be fair to send down a couple of 25-year-olds. So they send down a couple of people that look like they're maybe, what, 70? They look like they should have a hound beside them and a lantern as they walk through the moors to investigate some shit. One of them looks like former film director and present-day Twitter enthusiast Rob Reiner, and the other one is just some old man of indistinguishable celebrity comparison. And then these four old men just slow motion beat each other up real dopey style. By the way, indistinguishable celebrity appearance is going to be the name of my autobiography. There's a really dopey fight where Bond uses this like machine to wrap them up on, on the conveyor belt. The big takeaway from this spy-wise is uh -huh. Bond saying, like, Why is Zorn hoarding all these microchips? The world has a surplus of them. Why hoard them? I really had to think about how supply and demand works when this came out. I was like, yeah, why is he holding all this stuff? If there's a supply, this is like the second or third time I watched this. I'm like, I don't understand how this works. And then I was like, oh yeah, I'm an idiot. Now I get it. He's hoarding all this shit. So when they blow everybody up, he's got it all. So he and Tibbet cheese it. And then mm -hmm. we cut to a scene which features my favorite note of everything I wrote today, which was Mayday does some Tai Chi. 
which is a really fun thing to say, Chad. She and Christopher Zorin, they're sparring. I I guess it's Tai Chi. I don't know anything about martial arts. And she takes down Zorin and then Zorin gets on top of her and she snaps at him like a wild animal. Mm -hmm. And you know how there are certain celebrity couples that either have a secret sex tape or when you see them, you're like, you know what? I'd watch these two have sex. Mm -hmm. Christopher Zorin and Mayday Grace Jones, they're on my list. I'd love to see these two going at it. They have a very complicated but passionate relationship, and I respect You know who else is on my list? Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman. I don't know if I want to see that, but I like to think it happens a lot. I'd also like to see Soon Yi and Woody Allen, just to hear what he says. You know that there's a daddy or two in that mix. That's what makes it both gross and sexy. I'd like to see Lisa Marie Presley and Nicolas Cage have sex. 100%. And I'd like to see Lisa Marie Presley and Michael Jackson have sex. Mm-hmm. I'd like to watch Donkey and that dragon from the Shrek movies have sex. Yeah, that might be number one for me. And then my last one is I want to see Josh Gad and Cubert from Pixels have sex. In Cubert form or in the sexy lady Cubert form? No, it has to be Cubert form. They have Cubert babies. And I'm just thinking he just sticks his dick in Cubert's nose. I always thought that he had sex with her as the sexy version. But when she had the babies, out came the Cubert. He was like, oh, right. I'm fucking a Cubert, not a sexy lady. That's who I'm really married to. That implies that he got Cubert pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. And then Cubert had the babies? Yeah, one would one would presume. Yes. Clearly he didn't if he's yeah. not the one that got pregnant. I don't know how Cubert babies are made. All right. I'll send you a couple of websites. So th when they get interrupted by a guard and immediately walk in, it's like, I thought I told you I'm about to have sex with Mayday in a very violent way. And most of the violence is going to be at her hand. I'm just going to take it on the chin and the cheek. I'm going to smack her once and then she is going to punch me severely. In the dick, over and over and over again. That's what I pay her for. This may sound like a real horror show to you, but to me, <laughs> just describing it to you, I had a little bit of pre-cum drip, <laughs> and it oh my stained my, the gi that I wear. So this better be good is the moral of this story. The guy is like, hey, yeah, somebody busted into the stables. And he's like, all right, that's good enough. Well done. And then they go to check on Bond, <laughs> and he's not in his room, and immediately... Uh, hey, this guy's not sleeping in here. It's just a tape recorder with him snoring on it. It's not convincing snoring. It's the snoring of a 1920s comedy routine. It's insulting, is what it is. It's not even Curly from the Three Stooges. It's more like Curly Joe, which is such a pale imitation of the comedy classics that his namesake presented in earlier films. Listen to this. It's disgusting. Either our guest has one of the worst cocaine problems I've ever seen, and his septum is so deviated, he is making these ridiculous sounds, or he's a fan of vaudeville. You pick. So uh, they're they're about to go after Bond. He's a coke addict or a vaudeville fan. You know what? Maybe he's both. Who's to say? It's a free country. Mayday is like, I remember him now from the Eiffel Tower. And Zorian's like, send out the dogs, find him. And then Bond from another room is just like, Mayday. And they're like, the fuck is that? 
they open up her bedroom door. I've been waiting for you, darling, to take care of me personally. I'm hoping you find the smell of Ben Gay as intoxicating as I do. Zorin seems both surprised and kind of delighted that this old man is about to fuck Mayday. Go in and service his needs. I've got closed circuit cameras all over the, this place. I'm going to film it. And we'll watch it together later. He's sending her to do the advance work of like, find out if he's any good. You know what we like. If he can take a punch, see if he's willing to practice karate. If you don't think I'll fuck that old man, you don't know Max Zorin. Mayday and Bonfuck. Consenting adults, which is rare for this movie and franchise, quite frankly. Well, she's the aggressor here. She gets on top of him. Like, she thinks she's just going to fuck him to death. Which is not the craziest idea. No, because that's what happens in Goldeneye. You know, Mayday was the the proto-Xena on a top fucking shit. (laughs) Cut away for that, and Zorin and and Dr. Nazi find that nothing's been taken from the lab. But then Dr. Nazi is like, Wait! I have seen something! This tube is in the wrong spot. I know this because I'm O on C on D. Look, it's weird, but you say a vial's been moved. I'm with you. He's like, you know, we need to find out more about Bond. And so the next morning, Bond and Zoran are chatting in Zoran's office. And it's just a bunch of shit about like, tell me about horse bloodlines. Did you sleep well last night, uh, Mr. Sinjin Sinjin? Jin Sinjin. And Bond says, "Mm, well, I was a little restless, but I got off eventually. (laughs) Oh, God. Why is it that everything he says is about fucking? It's it's like what I imagine being around Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein was like. Or or Louis C.K. in a hotel room, just constantly uh, spanking it. It's like that one weird dude who's always like, did you see how hot that chick is? Did you see her? She's so hot. Either one, I will chalk this up to misguided youthful hormones, or maybe the arrested development of one's sexual maturity, but for a man who is almost 60 years old, who keeps making the 1980s equivalent of that's what she said remarks openly in public with potential business partners, it's inexcusable. Super spy or not, you're a embarrassing those around you you're embarrassing the audience and sadly you're not embarrassing yourself you pervert i feel like i've almost got you in into my headspace just forget about the age part of it and and imagine the same thing is true of a 30 year old (laughs) and all of all of that still applies as they're chatting like walken's real proud of his computer too he's like look at this i got a personal computer it's an amiga it plays nothing does nothing I can tell you any horse, uh, what they're worth, what the bloodline is. I can, this computer is truly, we live in an age of wonders, Mr. Bond. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a, a, a secret camera taking a picture of Bond. Yeah, it's spy shit like James Bond should have, but James Bond don't have yeah, it. Yeah, this is a real what's good for the goose moment after that ring shit. <laughs> And as they're chatting horses, Bond's picture comes up on the screen like this real shitty, like, you know, look, it's Apple IIe. It's, I got a total of a hundred blocks and no color, but it it breaks up (laughs) this real shitty picture of James Bond. And it says like, you know, real name, James Bond. And they're like, every time a piece of information comes up, Walken is like, ooh, like he (laughs) kind of... Oh, wah wee wah jackpot baby and then as they're chatting it says like uh presumed dangerous and, you know, and then <laughs> then it says hi chihuahua license to kill and he just goes 
and like takes off his shoe and hits himself in the head a couple of times. And Soren looks at him and he goes, oh, baby, I have just the horse for you. What say you and I go for a ride? And so Bod tells Tibbet, like, you know, I'm about to go on this very friendly horse ride. Why don't you take our $100,000 plus Rolls Royce into town and get it washed at a BP station? And while you're there, pick up a couple of Slurpees and a pack of smoke. Well, technically, he's he's having Tibbet get him to trace this $5 million check that was given to Stacy Sutton. And, and, but yeah, he stopped at the gate by Mayday, Tibbet is, who makes him get out and, and open the gate for himself. And then as soon as he opens the gate, she's gone. And any spy worth his fucking salt would be like, hey, I wonder if she got in my back seat. But this never occurs to Tibbet. No. Bond, then, we cut back to him, who is riding with Zoran. Walken is like, hey, I got you a horse. I, I hope you don't mind. It's a little spirited. And he's like, oh, what's the horse's name? And he's like, Oh, it's Inferno or Widowmaker. I can't remember. It's Bucky McBuckison. You know, I, we call him CTE for short. It's repetitive cranial injury is, is what you'll get out of this horse. He tells him, Mr. Sinjin, 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 if you stay on the horse for the whole course, you can have this particular pony gratis. That's how we rich assholes say you get it for free yeah and he's like well what if i don't and he's like well then i guess you get nothing and he's like well i don't have much of a choice do i and so a bunch of zorn's goons are along for the ride so we can see him wipe out because zorn has home alone booby trapped this race course dude does he just cheat all the time you can't build this many booby trap ways to to rig the system without it paying off in the long run he didn't do it just for james bond that shit was there already like when he had it built he was look i'm i love horses but i hate losing i'm not that strong a rider (laughs) (laughs) so if you could build remote control devices that make the course a million times hotter for anyone behind me let's just say there's an extra hundred in it for you it's real stupid. So they're having this race, and every time Walken jumps over a hurdle, like a bush raises three feet. The water trap extends out another ten feet. It, right. It's real goofy, but I kind of love it all. As other riders are fighting Bond, like, the clearly, the jig is up. They're punching him right. and, like, kicking him in the side. Like, one dude pulls a gun out and tries to shoot him in the head. It's like, oh dear, that seems very unsportsmanlike. And then Bond actually catches up and starts pulling ahead of Zoran. What is going on here? And who's just like, I'll be goddamned. And he hits the a button on his cane, which opens up the microchip or whatever the fuck. And the horse goes bananas. And uh-huh. James Bond runs the horse off the track. Into the woods. Into the woods, where he kind of angles the horse beside the Rolls Royce. That's driving down the road conveniently. Right, but what he doesn't realize is that Mayday has murdered Tibbet at the car wash. Yep. And is now in the car, so when Bond pulls up beside this car, Mayday stops, shows him her gun, and it's like, okay, well, he's caught. And then she shoots James Bond, the movie's over, and we can move on to the next episode. If only, Chad, because what happens instead is Zoran is like, look, Mr. Bond, I know who you are. 
he's like, you know, we're, we're going to murder you. And they throw him in the back seat with Tibbet, who is already dead. And they knock Bond out. And then Mayday rolls the Rolls Royce or Bentley or whatever it is into a lake. And they just watch it sink. Yeah, it's a real Susan Smith move. God damn it, Chad. My joke was, that's how you kill a backseat full of children, not a super spy. <laughs> but whatever. So Bond wakes up from this lake. And he waits till it sinks all the way and then opens the door, which is how you do that, I, I understand. Well, it's also important that when the car goes in the river, the windows in the back need to be lower. And then as it sinks, the water pressure causes all of the windows to go up. Right. Okay. That's what Neil deGrasse Tyson once told me after he was incredibly high on PCP. <laughs> I would love to hang out with Neil deGrasse Tyson on PCP. Could you imagine just watching any movie with Neil deGrasse Tyson? It's just how awful that would be. It depends on the it's movie. Like, nope. Nope. I would like to watch Not Reanimator with him just to see how close we ever got. Nope. It doesn't work like that. We can only reanimate corpses for four minutes at a time. What? Tell me more, Neil. Did the reagent <laughs> glow too? Also, did they steal the music from Psycho when they performed those experiments? <laughs> That's random reanimator trivia for you listeners at home. So now we're back at the real deal racetrack that we were at earlier in the movie. Mm -hmm. And Christopher Zorn gets approached by General Gogol, who is the head of the KGB. And he appears in The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill, and will also show up in The Living Daylight. So recurring character. And General Gogol, he reprimands Christopher Zorn and says... You did not request approval before killing 007. Reprisals may jeopardize ongoing operations. And then Christopher Azorin, he gives the most walking line in this movie when he says, You jeopardized mine! Yeah, it's a real, the ice is gonna break! It's one of those, like every, almost every movie, you get that one moment where Walken just can't take it anymore. And this is yeah, it, it is really good. But yeah, he's just like, I'm an independent contractor now. I don't care about you. I'm not a KGB agent. And I was like, wait, wait, he's a what now? Who? He was a KGB agent? That's news to me. That's the whole gig, right? Is that we learn here that he was a KGB agent who has gone rogue. And then some goon who, by the way, one of the guys in this scene is Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, he was dating Grace Jones and just showed up on the set. Talk about wanting to see two people fuck, Chad. I agree. I added him to my list. I didn't want to mention it earlier because I thought you might think I was weird. No, 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 no. Dolph Lundgren and Grace Jones in 1985 fucking? That I want to see. You know what's nuts is that this is also the same year that Rocky Four came out. This was the first movie he had ever been in, A View to a Kill. And then later that Christmas, he stars in one of the most iconic roles in boxing movie history of Ivan Drago. Good for you. Yeah, I, I always uh, had a, a soft spot for Dolph Lundgren. I, I like him quite a lot. He's a, uh, what is it, a, a PhD in physics or something? <laughs> really? Yeah, no, 100%. That guy is apparently very, very smart. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, Dolph Lundgren, one of those guys that eventually when we do a movie that features him, it will be the Dolph Lundgren story, and it's fascinating. All right, we'll make that happen. As soon as one of these goons is like, you're a physiological freak, uh, walking immediately, it's just like, Oh, why you got to come at me like that? Then Mayday just picks the guy up over her head and tosses him. And like General Gogol and his goons are like, remember, no one escapes to KGB. You can take your KGB and you can stick it where the sun don't shine. And that's your asshole. How about you take your KGB 
and put it right in your B-U-T-T. So then at a villain meeting later, uh-huh. the, we have our big, like, Zoran talking to... The, it, it's the, the Goldfinger scene with the map. I've been holding this thought for a while. Uh-huh. But this whole movie feels like a ripoff of Goldfinger. You've got your main bad guy has this hilarious blonde hair, which they both have, right? Then you've got a two-syllable named sidekick that don't really say a whole lot. We got Odd Job, and we got Mayday. Goldfinger was probably a Nazi, or at least Nazi adjacent, all right? This guy's Nazi adjacent, all right? In this scene, he rolls out his plan to this boardroom of investors, Mm -hmm. just like happened in Goldfinger. That's right. The finale of this movie involves a bomb on a rolling cart. He has no problem letting his henchmen get blown up by said bomb. In this movie, we have Operation Main Strike versus Goldfinger's Operation Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. Like, the end of the movie, spoilers, the Bond villain dies from falling from way up in the sky after hand-to-hand combat with James Bond. There's just a whole lot of similarities between these two movies. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if they just took that script and they were like, how can we make this but different? And and this is what they came up with, you know? Yeah, they go to a horse farm? Instead of uh, James Bond hanging out and drinking mint juleps, instead he uh, chases somebody up the Eiffel Tower, but there's still a blonde guy with a, a, a secret plan and a meeting where he's like, hey, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, we're going to end the domination of Silicon Valley and... In return for a hundred million dollars and half your net profits, I won't murder you. <laughs> Just like in Goldfinger, one of the guys says, "Ah, fuck this shit, I'm out of here." Look, follow May Day. I love how he says her name, by the way. He's the best Bond villain ever in my book. He disappears for way too much of this movie here in a minute, but he's just wonderful in it. And anyway, she leads him out of the room into this stair that turns into a slidey stairs, and this dude is dumped out of the giant Zorn blimp. But that's a reveal. You don't know that you're in a blimp until he cu- until that dummy of his body falls out and splashes in the water. Yeah, and it's a great dummy drop. I always like those, and it's a pretty good one. Yeah, it's real Super Dave Osborne quality work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what i like the more floppy a dummy you drop the happier a guy i am like when the arms and the legs are just perpendicular yeah as the wind blows them upward i want all the weight in the chest so <laughs> the arms and the legs are like streamers but now we're in san francisco Bo. yeah and home of such movies as memoirs of an invisible man season three episode four and basic instinct season six episode five sexy time (laughs) yeah and as they pilot this blimp into san francisco this is the titular line where mayday says wow what a view and walken says to a kill and you're like what what does that mean i I wish mayday had just been like i don't i don't understand what (laughs) what do you mean did you understand what i i said did what did you think i said you know it's to a kill like we're gonna kill some people down there it's a view of that that doesn't make any sense look they put it on the paper And I read it. Enough! Sometimes when you maim an animal or a human, the wound can eventually turn into something that's more fatal. And that's when I said to a kill. Because you said, what a view. Wait, what did did you say? I don't think what I said actually made sense. You say it back, but you say my part so I can hear it. I'm going to say, wow, what a view to a kill. Yeah, when you say it, when I hear it back, it sounds like nonsense. 
You probably shouldn't have said that because you sound like a fool. It's hard to imagine that anyone would call anything a view to a kettle. Makes no sense. Bond then ends up at a fish market in San Francisco for the early birds. Uh Uh-huh. And he walks up to, you know, a stall there and he's like, I'm interested in soft-shelled crab. And the guy behind the counter is like, are you... Are you sure? Because that can really upset uh, your stomach at your age. And I don't know. I mean, are you on vacation? Because do you have some place where... What I'm asking is, can you get to a bathroom quickly? And Roger Moore is like, no, no, I'm I'm a spy. And he's like, oh, right. Soft shell crab. Uh, okay, I'm a CIA agent. Don't worry about it. Let's go out back. Uh, and I'll give you some details. But this is one of those months where I'm like... Asking for soft-shelled crabs seems way too common uh, a request to hinge revealing yourself as a CIA agent on. There isn't even a playful back and forth where he asks for soft-shell crab, and then he says, oh, those aren't in season right now. And it's like, you know, well, I'm from Maine, and I think they're fantastic, especially in February. Oh, that's wonderful. By the way, I'm CIA operative and martial arts expert Chuck Lee, you know, Bruce Lee's cousin. Yeah, I just want the crabs. Can I, I don't, I don't care. Can I just have crabs? At this point, Chuck Lee, he pulls out these black and white photos that upon seeing this movie now three times, I finally figured out that these were the photos that 007 took with his pinky camera earlier at the garden party. Yeah. Um, wish you would explain that to me earlier, Bo. It would have saved me a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. Cause he's like, okay, Conway is the American. He made a lot of money in South African gold. Which uh-huh. makes him incredibly unethical and yep. yada yada. And he says, well, there's an oil rig that he's running that seems to be clean, like business-wise. But, Chad, it is very heavily guarded. And then an old pirate tells James Bond, oh, all the crabs disappeared from there, too. <laughs> he's like, oh, well, thank you. I, I'm i in the market for soft-shelled crabs. I'm a spy. During this conversation, Chuck Lee also says, uh, also, uh, James, here's a picture of Dr. Nazi that you met. He's a former Nazi doctor who experimented on pregnant women in concentration camps. And they produced super smart babies that were also psychotic and they had blonde hair and they spoke with a staccato cadence. Yeah. So if you see anybody like that, you know, it's going to be trouble. That's all I'm saying. Let me ask you this. Did you see the dead zone? It, the guy the guy in that talks a lot like this guy. No, darling. I, I did not see the dead zone. I don't really go to the theater to see those types of motion pictures. David Cronenberg is a hack. Did you see Annie Hall? No, darling. I did not see that either. Deer Hunter? No. Have you seen any movies at all? I saw The Poseidon Adventure. Thought that was quite thrilling. What can I say? I like, I like movies about the sea. Arr, me too. Bond splashes off into the water to go look for um, all these missing crabs, right? That's right. He is on a crab hunt. This time he is forgoing the seagull hat for actual scuba gear. Smart move. Uh Uh-huh. That only took 13 movies. And then he overhears as he's like sneaking around underneath the the oil platform that Zorn is on board for like this big event and they're having a, a, a test. It's called Operation Grand Slam. Nope, sir. That name is trademark. You can't use you can't use Grand Slam. But it's my favorite. I love bacon, sausage, pancakes, and eggs. You're gonna go have to go with one of the other options on the list. You can't call it Grand Slam. How about Big Time? I don't know that it has the heft or the weight that you're really looking for. You might wanna we put a list together for you. Um just pick any one of those. Alright. I'm a big fan of of this whole Big event kind of thing. How about something with bowling, like the Golden Turkey 
sir, that's that's not on the list. I'm pretty sure I put I compiled the list and Golden Turkey isn't on there. How about Hula Hoop Surprise? Again, sir, are you even looking at, sir, that's a, that's a Hardee's bag in your hand. I don't know where that came from, but the list, it's the yellow paper on the table there. Operation Lodge Fries. Again, sir, that's the receipt from inside the Hardee's bag. I need you to pick up the the small yellow card on the table to your right. Just pick a name off of that. And that will be the name of your villainous plan to take over Silicon Valley. Got it. Operation Come Back Soon. Sir, that's your mail, and that's from your dentist reminding you that you have a cleaning coming up in two weeks. The It's the yellow card with the blue ink in my handwriting. Your teeth, they're so important, you only get one set uh, other than your baby teeth. You get two sets of teeth, but one is taken so soon. You're just reading more off of the same dental reminder card. All right, Operation Milton Bradley, but the words are reversed on this box. You know what, sir? We'll we'll go with that, and um, I'll just change it later. I don't know why you didn't call it Operation Main Strike. Sounds sexy. I hate my job. Bond then opens up this grate that leads to a big tube, and props to the prop department here for their fake crab attached to this particular grate. That was... (laughs) That was one of those things that I loved every time it found its way into the shot where Bond is wrestling with this great and that crab ain't going nowhere, man. Uh, that almost <laughs> turned into Biden. That crab ain't going nowhere, Jack. Uh, upstairs, Walken is like, hey, bring the pumps up to full test. Main strikes in three days. Yeehaw, we can't do that. You go all the way up. You're going to suck in so much water. You might cause the jib jab to go crip crap. A test is here to see if anything breaks. Turn it up. Like autograph turned up the radio. Yes, sir. Yeehaw. Kapow, kapow. <laughs> and then, yeah, Bond starts getting sucked towards this big fan. Rather, this is quite a pickle I found myself in. The first time I haven't enjoyed this much suction. It's been a long time since I've been this wet without having such a good time. Of course, avoiding talk of my anus that is often wet, but mostly because of the Metamucil. Uh, he releases his scuba gear to jam up the fan, and then he escapes, and then sirens are wailing in the control room and stuff. I told you, Zorn! God, curse it! Resin, present. But also, not only is James Bond there, there are some sneaky Russians who are there, like, trying to spy, uh, like, literally spy with listening gear. This all feels really tacked on. This both shows up and goes away pretty quickly. Yeah. And then Mayday goes down to see what's going on kind of under the oil platform and discovers a Russian there planning a bomb. And so Mayday grabs him, takes him up to Zorin, and Zorin is like, I'm going to need you to defuse this bomb. And the guy's like, all right, uh, you know, here, the bomb's uh, defused. And uh, he's like, great. Hey, have you ever looked down a really long shaft? <laughs> and the Russian is just like, no. He's like, oh, good. You're going to love it. And he opens up a, a big tube, and the Russian gets shoved into it. And it turns out that it is one of the 
propeller blades or whatever. And it's an underwater version of the snowblower from On Her Majesty's Secret Service because it gets jammed up at first and then it clears out. Well, that's the best part is when you see the needles where the pressure is wavering because it's chewing up the yeah. the contents of a human body and then it goes back to to normal that is a nice touch and then on the beach meanwhile sexy russian spy pola avanova appears from the surf did you think it was james bond coming out of the water the first time you saw her i did at first and then i was like ah the the movement of this figure is too youthful and vibrant and lifelike <laughs> It's not as unsure of its footing on the sandy beaches of this water. Look, the last thing any of us want here is to take a spill, darling. <laughs> That's why I have these socks with grips on the bottoms. Keeps me from falling when I'm alone at home. She comes out of the water, and she's got this yellow Walkman in her hands, and she zips over to her IROC Z sports car, and then James Bond, quite literally, out of nowhere, he just pops out of the bushes and grabs her. Or it as takes he calls off it. her top. Like, it is one swift move of, like, Haikiba. And then immediately, her top is off. Yeah. And then these two go back to San Francisco where they take up hold in a public sauna bath and they're both naked in this public hot tub in San Francisco in the year 1985. Bob Schimmel had a great bit about public hot tubs where he said, I'm not getting in there without a condom on and a cork up my ass. And that's all I could think about is that this is basically HIV stew. Yeah, this is a, a real filthy uh, brew here. In the middle of the AIDS epidemic, we got these two people just in a public bathhouse in San Francisco. I mean, I don't know that it could be more cliched than that. Unless they were just like sharing needles and inviting like other dudes in for group sex action or something. But it's also 1985. So a man like James Bond is thinking, well, I'm not homosexual. So clearly the gay cancer will skip me. Fair enough. You know, the band played on and a bunch of ignorant shitheads made terrible decisions i'm so happy that uh we are living a more enlightened age <laughs> right where we trust science to lead us out of a medical problem that is nice it's it's nice to know that we've learned something in 40 years yeah faith and religion why should we lean on that old crutch here's the problem with living in modern times for a guy like me chad i don't even have the crutch of religion to lean on i don't have the opiate of the masses to make all this wash down real smooth. All right, well, that's why we do this podcast. That's true. Outside, while Bond is loving up Iva Polavlava or whatever her name is, yeah, yeah, there's a dude in shadows just kind of waiting in the car outside, and it's like, hey, I wonder if he's also a spy. So after Bond and this Russian agent naturally fuck, she swipes the tape that she recorded while Bond is in the shower and fucks off. Right, because he swapped it for another tape. A Tchaikovsky, because there's the joke about when she turns on the bu bubble, she goes, the bubbles tickle my, oh, Tchaikovsky. And, but what she meant, Chad, was pussy. <laughs> so, see, that's how clever this movie is. And then Bond gets out of the shower. She's gone, but she and her handler, who is the uh, General Gogol, yeah. they throw in the tape as they rock it off, and it's the ping. Yeah, it's an Asian the... spa music. Right. Bond has the real tape and he listens and makes notes in his little detective pad. Oh my God. These notes are awesome. They're for dummies like me. I'm like, what is happening in this movie again? And the big thing is writing main strike and a giant question mark below it. He writes the word Zoran, uh -huh. main strike, and then three days. 
Yeah. Question mark. And, and the question mark has a really long stem and a tiny little top. And he does this thing where he, he makes the motion of the question mark and then the dot at the bottom and then taps it again. And I'm like, oh, man, you are a nightmare on standardized tests. Let's cut to James Bond interviewing a city councilman about how Zoran is pumping water in and not out or something. And the city councilman's associate, it turns out that it's Stacy, the blonde woman from the garden party earlier, who arrived in the helicopter. And uh, she was the recipient of the $5 million check. It turns out, Bo, that Stacy is a geologist. Sure. Why wasn't this mentioned earlier? And it didn't matter. I have a theory. Yes, go ahead. I think that the screenwriters had the first half of this movie done, and then they saw Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, because this was like 1984 and they were writing it, and they just decided to knock off the finale of that movie, and to do so meant that the back half of this film would deviate completely away from the genetic mutation of horse breeding that was set up in the first half of the film. <laughs> yeah, you can forget all about them horses. It doesn't come up again. Don't even yeah, worry none about of it. It matters. None of it at all. In fact, it is such a mishmash of what the hell are you doing exactly? But okay. Also, forget about them Russians because that don't matter no more either. Nope. Then Bond just follows Tanya Roberts like a giant creep back to her house which is secluded and amazing. Rather than knock on the door the way a normal person would, Bond uses a sharper image doodad, or maybe it's a sharper image credit card, to break into her house. And then the house is totally empty of all furniture. And the only thing on the walls is a portrait of some old white guy who's not James Bond. Right. Paul Giamatti comes in and gives Russell Crowe a big speech about (laughs) getting, getting back on the horn. He sold all the furniture. There's also a little pillar with a... Uh, like a, a little podium with a vase on top that we are to assume is like a an urn adorned with flowers. So then James Bond, again, the world's biggest creep, he just goes up the stairs of this house and then a Persian cat screeches and jump scares the audience for some reason. Yeah, it's a James Wan movie for two and a half seconds for no good reason. It's like, Why is that in here? It, uh, head scratching. Bond, remember, who broke into this house, goes to the top of the stairs, walks into Stacy's bedroom, which also has a bunch of bird cages filled with birds in it, which if you have birds as pets, you're weird. Okay? Like, the only time this is appropriate is if you're in a Warner Brothers cartoon and the house belongs to Granny, you know? And she's going to leave Sylvester to be on his best behavior with Tweety Bird as she runs down to the market. I've always wanted to get a bird just because I'm a cat owner. And just to see that constant struggle and the tension that you could create in a house with that dynamic. Anybody who owns birds, you're a weirdo. Okay? So... (laughs) I got that covered already. Speaking of weirdos, James Bond is in Stacy's room and in the bathroom, the shower is going. So naturally he just walks in there to get a, you know, a little peek. Oh, well, the sound of water running is an implied yes. But Bo, this was all a ruse because Stacy was hiding in the closet with a shotgun. Good for her. And Stacy says, hey, mister, you tell Zoran I'm not going to do that thing that he wants me to do that thing. 
what? And then for some reason, a bunch of Zoran's henchmen show up and then James Bond grabs the shotgun and starts blasting them. It's very violent until James Bond realizes that the shotgun is full of rock salt, which I think that that happened because we can't have James Bond just spilling blood all over the place. Wantonly murdering a dozen people <laughs> like it's assault on Precinct 13. And then it just turns into a fist fight laced with comical suspense as the hooligans and Grandpa, excuse me, James Bond, just sort of dance around with the ashes in this urn, hoping not to spill them. But then they crash and break. And then all of the hooligans, they're like, let's get out of here. <laughs> and they jump in their Ford Bronco 2 and speed down the road. Here's what I love about this scene. First of all, there's an honest-to-goodness judo chop that Roger Moore does in this yeah. fighting sequence that's real funny. Also, the amount of obvious stunt people that are fighting in this scene brings me a little bit of happiness, too. Like, this is so, like, clunky and poorly done <laughs> that it <laughs> delighted me. Like, like that I, level of incompetence for a movie that was a big deal. This is a big deal movie. It's a James Bond movie, you know? I don't like them, but people do. The fake stunt fighting in that Eddie Murphy Dolomite film was better than the real stunt fighting in this movie. Uh, after the fight, Stacy Sutton... Dude, she says, I'm Stacy Sutton, and you're a reporter. I'm going to feed my cats. I know about Zorin. Hey, you can cook? My cat's name's Pussy. <sighs> and it's just like, all right, what are we learning? What are we doing? And then Bond's like, oh, yes, darling, I can cook. And he like pops out of this oven, this oversized quiche, <laughs> and he goes, voila, quiche de cabinet, which I'm assuming this is cabinet quiche. We just throw whatever the fuck you got in the house into this thing. Mm. And Stacy says, ah, it looks good. What is it? And Bond says, it's an omelet. And I was like, Stacy's an idiot. And also, Stacy can't be a geologist. <laughs> right. If you don't know what eggs are. I think that this councilman just gave her the job of state geologist to kind of, you know, help her pay the bill. It's an honorary title. They yeah, don't give uh -huh. her any responsibility. When it, no. Like, sometimes she takes files home and that's a problem, but no otherwise. <laughs> she tells Bud that she is the heir to Sutton Oil which Zoran now controls because he did like a hostile takeover. And the check he was writing was for her shares in Sutton Oil. And he was going to pay basically 10 times what the shares were worth. And James Bond's like, so what are you going to do with all that money? And she tears up the check. Buy my birds and my cats. I'm going to open a campground for kitties tears up the jacket and he's like oh very good you're just the kind of crazy i like to sleep with there are flavors in your mind later on he's getting her loaded on wine and he's like while you're drinking and please continue to drink i'll check all the doors and windows and i'll even reconnect the phone and she's like yeah the wire's outside the bedroom window and he creeps around uh, on the ledge and, and like fixes it. And when he's done, he crawls into her bedroom through the window. Sure. How else would he enter a woman's bedroom at night? The shower's not running, so you don't go through the front door. There are rules, Chad. <laughs> and then she's asleep and he just covers her up like a gentleman. And I guess sleep is where he draws the line where he's like, well, I don't want it to be like I'm having sex with a corpse. I like the struggle. That's gross. Speak for yourself. <laughs> that was my that was my Bill Cosby. Oh, wow. <laughs> with the raping of drugging. All right, that's all I got. Theo, you can speak for yourself. Putting pop imitation of Bill Cosby. 
drugging on the one. Bond wakes up in the morning with a shotgun in his lap like he was waiting for his daughter to come home. Uh-huh. And Tony Roberts brings him some coffee and the pets are freaking out. And he's like, look, if you don't calm them down, I'll take care of them. And she's like, no, no, there's a tremor. It's Ned Zorin's oil field. And Bond says, hmm, I saw Zorin was pumping seawater into their oil lines. Is that important to the plot of our movie? Right. And she immediately is like, what? Why didn't you tell me that? That's dangerous. Yeah. I gotta go talk to the city councilman. I gotta get all these important papers back to him. He called me and said I had to bring him back. A lot of these are payroll checks. <laughs> I think there are a few prescriptions in here that belong to his wife. I love the fact that this this poor mentally deficient woman is taking payroll checks of good civil servants. They were like, why didn't we get paid? Because Stacy took the file? Normally when I bring home paychecks, I just rip them up. Because I'm not going to take any money from anybody. I like confetti. My cats and my birds. <laughs> I line their cages with payroll checks. <laughs> just uses their, their 401k stubs as shit paper but and then cut immediately to her coming out of her boss's office i got fired there's a real good like so how'd that go i don't have a job anymore what am i gonna do to lie in the cage of my birds and they're gonna shit everywhere so bond says i have a friend from washington who could provide some answers and uh chuck lee shows up at stacy sutton's house and they decide that an earthquake can't affect Silicon Valley. They're like, eh, you know, that's not how this works. They decide that they have to figure out how many wells Zorin is using. The only way they're going to do that is because of maps, which are publicly available, but it's nighttime and they can't get in. Hey, I know where there's some maps at my old job. Very good. Now, now, if you would like to pet your kitty. Yeah, she's like, I've got to pass to City Hall. Great, we'll go to City Hall, and Chuck, you go get in your truck and leave the movie never to be seen again. He gets in his car, and while, like, comically, while they're just looking away, Mayday murders Chuck Lee and drives off in his car. And uh-huh. James Bond and Tanya Roberts are just, like, waving at the car as it leaves. Like, mm, he's a good chap. I sure hope he's not lying dead in the back seat. Come back and see us again. Hey, if you come back later, bring some Chinese food. I hope that didn't come off this racist. Oh, I wasn't even listening. They go to City Hall, and and Tony Roberts does get him into this big file room. Hey, Charlie, it's me. I'm here late at night. I know I got fired, but I'm still going to go in. By the way, this is my friend. His name is St. Sinjin, 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 Sinjin. He's going to go up with me, all right? I know you're the security guard, but, you know, don't say anything. Shh, it's our secret. By the way, is this your paycheck? If you get stuck in the elevator again, just call me, okay? Sometimes I like to hit the red button. I, I know you do. <laughs> it's uh, that stops. The red means stop, and that stops the elevator car. I like it. I know, sir. Could you? I'm sorry. I'm not getting involved. This is <laughs> clearly you two have history. I'm only in town for a couple of days. This will. I plan to hit it and quit it as the parlance of the days. <laughs> now I know, as Sir Mixalot might say, that you are perhaps the kind of gentleman who would stay and play, but uh, I fall into <laughs> the hit it and quit it camp quite squarely. Outside uh, City Hall, our henchman, Scarpine, he shows up to see what these two are up to, which, how did he even know that they were there? Who cares at this point? Stacy and James Bond, they go into the file room at City Hall, and they discover that Main Strike is an abandoned silver mine near the San Andreas Fault. And about this time, Christopher Zorn and Mayday, Grace Jones, they somehow have gained entrance into City Hall as well, despite the need for a security pass to get past the, the guard. Christopher Zorn uh, says, hey... 
It's James Bond. How about I unveil my evil plan before I kill you, as is the tradition in all James Bond movies? Why don't we go over to the city councilman's office where he's working late for dramatic effect? So we got two bad guys, our two good guys, and we got a city councilman all in this office. Yeah. And Zoran is like, look, how, which is the name of the, the city councilman. And he's like, look, here's what happened. It's a tragedy. These two broke in she was upset because of the way you fired her on account of gross incompetence i think he's talking about me oh yeah i am and so she came in shot you in the chest and you bled and wailed and then after you died they burned the place but got stuck in the elevator like a couple of idiots did i push the red button again oh my god (laughs) you're a key part of my plan this is a good story keep going i like this good you're gonna love how it ends once the fire rages it'll cook anyone inside that elevator like it's a dutch oven you know who's a really good cook this guy jane sinjin 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 he made an omelet that looked just like a quiche i gotta tell you i'm real glad i never have to listen to either of you again i fed some of it to my kids he got diarrhea all right put him in the elevator come on he (laughs) should and hal is like wait a second for that to be true and uh, Zorin's like, right, I got to shoot you. And then he shoots him in the chest. And then he and Mayday and his security guy, Scarpine, do trap Bond and Tanya Roberts in between floors in this elevator. Jenny Flex and Pan Ho show up with gasoline to help set this place on fire. It's a real potty. Well, <laughs> it's BYOC. Bring your own combustible. <laughs> just as long as it burns, throw it and light it. Why doesn't Zorin just shoot both of them and then burn this place to the ground? Well, so the idea is, I mean, right, of course he should. But the idea is he (laughs) uses James Bond's gun so that police in the aftermath of all this would think, oh, Tanya Roberts and an accomplice shot this guy and died trying to escape. There is no need to investigate, say, genetically altered oil magnates <laughs> in terms of this murder. So he's like, come on, we got to get out of here. This fire is out of control. And so they take off. And then there's a whole sequence in the elevator. Just skip it. Bond trying escape. to get out. They escape. There is a pretty funny bit where an old rummy sees Bond like fireman carry Tanya Roberts to safety. Yeah. And there's no payoff to it other than, like, maybe he quits drinking because he saw heroism. It's weird. In all of the Roger Moore Bond movies, there is a running gag where a drunk sees something unbelievable and gives it the old, what's in this? And this is the the moment in this film where that happens. All right, fair enough. So back on the ground again, a cop who looks suspiciously like Dennis Franz Uh comes over and gives him a real like, all right, all right. Hey there, buddy. Is this your gun? We fought at the office of the dead guy and that five alarm fire that's right behind you. You're under arrest for the death of city councilman. What's his name? And Bond is like, now I appreciate your perspective, but my name isn't James Sinjinson. It isn't? What's your name? My name is Bond. James Bond. And you can verify that with CIA agent Chuck Lee. Just tell him that you want some soft-shelled crabs. And they're like, hey, we found that guy dead in Chinatown. Did he have Chinese food with him? Did you bring it back? I'm so hungry. I hope he got some duck sauce. I fed my dinner to my cats. It was an omelet that looked like a quiche. It got diarrhea. It vomited it up and it ate it again. 
and I watched it. Realizing that he is in a pickle, Bond leans against this fire truck and just casually is like, well, perhaps we can come to some sort of arrangement. Yoink! And then opens up a fire hose, a big gaping hole on the fire truck, what shoots water out of it. Then his friends and a couple other cops get a real like, whoa, 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 as the water knocks them back. At this point, the movie decides to thrill us with a low-speed fire truck chase that ends with the saddest bridge leap ever captured on film. <laughs> Imagine how low a bridge has to be for a fire truck to jump over it, and that's how how high it's raised. I think it would be impossible for a person to fall through the gap between this bridge. It's like a two-foot gap. And look, we could pick apart this fire truck scene for a half hour, but I don't want to do that. It's an 80s crash em up with cars in a Roger Moore James Bond movie. He's hanging off the ladder. It's the whole thing. It ends with Bond and Stacy driving the fire truck to Zoran's main strike location near the San Andreas Fault. They just kind of ditched this fire truck. Like they just yeah. took it for a Friday night joyride yeah. and knock out some guy that's got a truck full of explosives and steal sure, that okay. truck. Why not? And so they drive into the like Zorn construction site with yeah. the truck that literally just left the Zorn construction site. We forgot the keys to the truck. We had to come back and get them. And the guy's just like, yeah, all right, listen, what you're going to do, you're going to park the truck. We're going to load it up for you. Give us about 20 minutes. You can take a, a breather in the office. By the way, there's some coffee. I'd stay away from the crema, but uh, help yourself. They just go into this trailer, and as they're walking away, one, the foreman or whatever sees Tanya Roberts' heels and gives it that look of like, hey, what, what's this lady doing here with lady shoes? And James Bond says, it's women's lib. They're taking over the Teamsters. And you're like, eh, again, I know that it was of a day, but why even bother with any of this? You're asking the wrong guy. But anyway, so they go to this trailer and they're snooping around and then they swap uniforms for some other mine uniforms. Then they get into this cart that's loaded with explosives that is going down into this old silver mine. Right. And so down in the this big construction area under under the ground in this mine, Zorin and and Mayday are there. And Zorin is just like, "Look, I got a bomb." And, and is arming it while James Bond kind of watches from this office space with Tom. Where'd this bomb come from? That seems like a miss, right? Well, and also they don't explain cuz I was like, "Is this a nuclear bomb?" cuz that's kind of what it looks like. And I never got a point where they were like, Look, we got a, a, a super bomb to go along with all the other bombs. Goldfinger had a bomb. This guy gets a bomb. Sure. The set that they roll into, it's the Temple of Doom, right? I would imagine it is reused from Temple of Doom. So the bomb gets lowered down into the belly of the Temple of Doom. But it's a literal, like, well of souls. <laughs> of, yeah. But it, but in this case, it's just full of explosives. I guess. And Tanya Roberts, meanwhile, has uncovered this giant clue in the form of a big map. Look at this map I found! It says, what is this picture right here? It's a bomb blowing up! This might be a clue! She says... This is the most nonsense thing in a movie full of nonsense, where Tanya Roberts is like, if they flood all these faults, they can make a double earthquake. And you're like, wait a second. The fuck is a double earthquake? I don't yeah. I don't think that's a real thing. Go check the sci-fi network. It's the real. It's a thing. <laughs> well, also, we got to worry about the tornado condos. 
uh, they drop the bomb down in there, and and Tanya Roberts says, "If they do this at spring tide, which is less than an hour, all of Silicon Valley is going to be submerged." There's a moment when she, what she says is she's like, "If they do this at the peak of the spring solstice with the the heavens and my the zodiac, then it's going to be trouble for everybody." And then James Bond walks over to this piece of paper on the wall, and he's like, "At the peak of the spring solstice, well, that's in 24 minutes. That I, was on the paper." Yeah, it, well, it it just gave the time and because james bond is a super spy he could look at his watch and be like wait a second if i subtract this time from the time on my watch 24 minutes i should probably tell this this little blondie while they're figuring this out mayday and zoran and and the rest of the crew realize that somebody is snooping around in the office and are trying to bust in and there's a really nice moment where when they can't get through the door walken just jams his arm in the room and starts firing wildly (laughs) and then bond throws a chair at his arm yeah hey come on what do we do with throwing chairs down on the floor scarpine he's in the tunnels and he puts some sort of dynamite fashion bomb into one of the mine cars that's filled with explosives and the foreman comes over and explains hey we're under the san andreas lake this place could flood any minute and then we cut to a wide shot and we see some guy fishing on the lake uh-oh, he's in trouble. There's piranhas. I guess. Grace Jones, Panho, and Jenny Flex pursue them, but the, right. but they they come to a split and Mayday is like, "I'll go this way. You Jenny Flex and Panho, you go that way." Right. And so that's how they split up. And meanwhile, uh Walken is just like, "Hey, you know that bomb we put down there with all the workmen? Let's blow that up." The guys like, "Hey, but that would kill Mayday and all of my men." Yeah. I know. It's got to be really special. Convenient, ain't it? And then clomps the guy on the head and sets off the thermos charge. And the whole mine begins to flood uh, while this fisherman up top is acting all surprised because the lake is bubbling, which in fairness is a reasonable response to a bubbling lake. Sure. Aside from shitting your pants and screaming. Yeah, but I do so much of that now. It's it's one of those things that like it, it doesn't even seem like an alarm anymore. As the mineshaft floods, the workers are running around, everybody's screaming and yelling. Bond and Stacy find a ladder, so they're making their way up. And then we cut back to the, the main room in the Temple of Doom, and Christopher Zorn's there, and he just picks up a machine gun and just starts indiscriminately mowing down all of his own workers alongside Scarpine. And Zorn is just laughing like a madman the whole time. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes him kind of a great villain, is he is completely psychotic, you know? And that's the thing is, they say a number of times in the movie is that, you know, all these eugenics experiment experiments result in people who are super intelligent and super strong but they're all psychotic and and so that's max soren is while he is murdering all of these workers he's having a good time sure you know like that's what you want to see out of uh, a villain is somebody who delights in being evil or or you understand their point of view and in this case it's like oh he's he's a bad guy but he just has so much fun being the bad guy how do you not enjoy it you know, you enjoy what you do. You never work a day in your life. Yeah. And also, there's a bit of a, a Trump parallel in a number of ways in this movie. But, I mean, talk about not paying contractors. What a way, <laughs> right? Like, if he could get away with it, like, all I need is an Uzi, plenty of clips. <laughs> the the place is flooding. Panho and Jenny Flex uh, kind of get swept away by the waters. Uh, Tanya Roberts and James Bond are cr- escaping up this access shaft. And Grace Jones is right behind him. 
Yeah, I like when Mayday Grace Jones, she reaches up and grabs Stacy's dark blue woman's overalls, like the, the workman's outfit that she stole. <laughs> yeah. And Mayday gives it a yank and the whole thing tears away like male stripper pants. So we can get Stacy back into a sexy dress to show off her gams. Yeah. And give, you know, dads everywhere a little something to ogle for the last 10 minutes of this movie. Right. It, in Twice in this movie has somebody just yanked off somebody's clothes for some cheesecake. It again, it's one of the reasons that I will never ever watch any movie from this series when we're done with this. But it it is just like, oh, that is so that, that's pure James Bond. The ground starts shaking and rumbling in a quake-like fashion, and it causes James Bond and Mayday Grace Jones to fall back down into the rushing waters below. Zoran is still shooting all of his workers and laughing, and then he caps off his murdering rampage by saying, "Uh, good." Uh, right on schedule. Yeah, that's a real problem. A real problem. It's like, yeah, I guess he grew up in Germany, so maybe it's the European influence, I guess. I, but hearing Walken so. say like, good, we're right on schedule. You're just like, no, 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 sir. You are from New York, 100%. And they pronounce it <laughs> schedule there. We then cut back to the now empty lake and the old fisherman, he's just standing around there looking around. Hey, what happened? Is that a punchline? Like, we'll never see that guy again, Also, where are all, all right. the flopping fish and foliage and shit? Tires and <laughs> right. uh, corpses. <laughs> a couple and... of bodies, like Shelly Winters <laughs> is down there from Night of the Hunter. Bond and Mayday, they're neck deep in water, and Mayday says, I thought that creep loved me! And Bond says, you're not the only one that was double-crossed. And I'm like, what are you, are you hitting on her? Here, Always. What are, you, what are we doing? You, uh, why are you even asking that question? It is James Bond. He is like literally they are sharing an air pocket as the mind floods. And he's just like, hmm. So, you know, since you're already wet. Gross. Right? Christopher Zorin, he runs to a work trailer along with Scarpine. And then for some reason, we need to tie the front half of this movie to the back half of this movie. So Dr. Nazi is just hanging around the work trailer. And then uh, Christopher Zorin, and they all get into the, the work trailer. Zorin turns a valve, which the work trailer turns into a blimp, like the one we saw earlier, and just starts to float away. Yeah, it's pretty great. So meanwhile, there's been a whole big to do with this bomb to get it out of there so it doesn't blow up uh, all of Silicon Valley and all that fun stuff. And Bond and Grace Jones get this bomb, but they're going to try to throw it on the mine cart and run it out of the mine. But uh, it, the handbrake or whatever keeps sticking, so somebody's got to be on it. And that turns out to be Grace Jones. Oh, darling, it's definitely not going to be me. Why would I do anything heroic in this film? I'm the star of the movie, unless we're going to be having sex on that cart, you're going to be riding it alone. Mayday rides the bomb cart outside where it explodes, and Zorin sees it, and it's the one time in the movie where he's like, oh, no, that's the karate lady I used to fuck. <laughs> and then, in one of the dumbest things to happen in this whole stupid movie, Tanya Roberts is like, James! And is running after him. It's me, I'm up on this hill! I climbed out of the ladder! And what if I keep <laughs> screaming a whole lot, I'm not gonna hear a giant blimp loudly coming up behind me! Bond is like, look out behind you, and sure what? enough, what? this giant-ass blimp has crept up behind her, and Walken just leans out of the window and grabs her. Uh, he just scoops her up. Uh-huh. 
you're coming with me and this blimp. Bond reaches up and he grabs one of the mooring ropes that's dangling off the blimp. And then a stuntman gets pulled up into the air <laughs> as the blimp is full of Christopher Zorn, Scarpine, Dr. Nazi, and Stacy. So these are our five remaining characters in this movie. Right. He he never climbs up because he's an old man and doesn't have that kind of core strength uh, anymore. I don't care how many pull-ups you do at 57, you're just not yanking that old skeleton up a rope. I understand you're supposed to use your legs, but that's not happening, darling. Look, I'm going to tie the rope around my arm. I'm going to stay right here till the thing lands. And to shake him off, the pilot, like, runs him uh, over some antenna and stuff. He gets an antenna in the dick, which is pretty good. <laughs> I don't mind he that. Does. And it's Roger Moore hanging off a rope with an antenna just clocking him in the ball. <laughs> yeah. that's all right and so they're aiming for the golden gate bridge because you know they're like look just wrap this guy around the bridge and cut it loose let him let him dangle and as they're approaching the bridge walken has a like it's a really bad joke but it's a fun line or fun delivery where he's like it's gonna hurt him a lot more than it hurts me and then looks back laughing to see if everyone else thinks it's as funny as he does. <laughs> it's a nice moment. And so, sure enough, they, they get tied up uh, in the Golden Gate Bridge because Bond basically knots the mooring rope uh, right. to the bridge. So they're, they're kind of stuck. And Tony Roberts then just goes feral in the cabin. Yeah, she starts beating up Zoran, and she, I think, smacks the Nazi in the head once or twice. And then she knocks out Scarpine, and then she just jumps out of the blimp. Yeah, yeah. And, and meanwhile, the the blimp has crashed alongside the, the bridge, like the side of the, the cabin. Still tethered. It's still tethered, and it's effectively, like, marooned the blimp uh, on, on the bridge. And then Zoran gets Scarpine up, and he's like get him you know since about to, to kill him and toddy roberts then clunks scarpine in the head okay and and that's what gets rid of him or knocks him out in inside the cabin once she jumps out of the blimp that's when zoran he just grabs an axe yeah, a fucking fire axe and i'm like let's get this on you know there are guns inside the blimp like we saw them earlier there's at least two guns but never mind yeah and it's kind of a lackluster fight i think yeah it's an old man fighting a guy with an axe <laughs> right yeah <laughs> look not so fast darling it's hard to duck basically there's a little bit of back and forth and then bond sweeps the legs and knocks right. zoran's legs out from under him and he grabs the rounded platform that they've been standing on and it's clear that he's kind of slipping but because walken is a genius at acting the way yeah. he plays it is he's kind of amused by his own fate here you know, that he's kind of laughing as he's grabbing. It's a great death. He gives one last kind of laugh and then slips and falls. Unfortunately, he's gone from armor. Oh, it's so sad. Uh, look, I stuck around as long as I could. You guys take it from here. I'm sure it's going to be exciting. Ah, 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 Splash. Not to be outdone, Dr. Nazi, he's still on the blimp. He's not dead yet. He starts shooting his gun at Bond and Stacy. Right, he's all pissed up because this is kind of his kid. And and the reaction he has is like, Max! You know, like he's freaked out. And like you said, he starts, he starts shooting at 
at, at Bond and uh But then he finds an old timey prospector bundle of dynamite and lights the fuse. <laughs> yeah. Where they get all these fucking crazy sticks of dynamite in this movie. There were a bunch of them in the big pit too. It's just I don't know. I, uh, they might as well have acme on the side of it. Right. Bond cuts the rope. And it's kind of the same trick he had with the submarine, where when he cuts the mooring rope, suddenly the blimp is free and moving, and it knocks Dr. Nazi back into the cabin and he falls and Scarpine wakes up and is like, old man, are you serious? You lit dynamite. I like that Scarpine comes to long enough to see the moment of his death. Right. And to be like this fucking old German bastard is murdering (laughs) us both because he couldn't wait to light the dynamite. (sighs) Right. And so it blows up and, and sends both of them to hell. And then we cut to, MI6, where a Russian dude has shown up to give Commander Bond an award for doing their job, I guess. The the job of the okay. KGB of like, we want to celebrate Bond for killing eugenics experiment. Yeah. Right. It, they just it didn't matter at all to this movie. But anyways, he's like, but Bond is still missing. Right. And then we see Money Penny shedding a tear that this is the last movie she's ever going to be in. And how long have been, they been looking for James Bond at this point? 15 minutes. <laughs> right. Why is she already crying? Someone stole her paycheck. <laughs> she doesn't, can't find it anywhere. Why does this one say Money Penny? Money. Pennies are a type of money. That's why it says that. I know, darling. I really wish you would stop talking while we're trying to have sex. It brings me down. Speaking of which, we cut back to Stacy's mansion, where Q is creepily sitting outside in an RV, controlling his surveillance robot dog cockroach that we saw earlier in the movie. And this robot monstrosity makes its way into Stacy's bathroom, where Bond and Stacy are disgustingly showering together. And Q is watching on the camera that's attached to this robot nightmare, which... I want to know, did Q go inside and put this thing on the second floor of this house? Because I don't think it can go upstairs. Like, is that how he gets his jollies, like, watching people have sex live on a camera? Well, I mean, the man is, like, 85 years old. Like, Roger Moore is still getting by with the chewables, but... Ain't nothing stirring (laughs) on Christmas at at Q's house. I guess. So the robot dog cockroach goes in, raises its head, sees James Bond and Stacy disgustingly having sex in the shower. And then Duran Duran sings the theme to the movie roll credits. Yeah. And that is the end of, and we get the Duran Duran song again, which is always uh, a crowd pleaser. And, and the final threat this time, there wasn't even a title. I don't think it was just like James Bond will return at the end to, to let you know that this nightmare isn't over yet. Yeah, this is not a good movie. And one of the things about the Roger Moore era that you touched on in your intro is how cheeky and silly and at times overly goofy for the sake of humor that they are. And once we transition into our next bond with Timothy Dalton, that era is really over. They close the chapter on that and we move into a space that is trying to be a much more serious adaptation of James Bond because the pendulum for the Roger Moore era really swung out into a space that was just goofy at times yeah and you know i enjoy the goofier aspects of this and i think that's why i even though i haven't seen a lot of the more stuff if i were gonna watch more bond uh, i think i would probably kind of sit in this era a little bit longer because i like the silliness of it i still find all the lecherousness and and bad punnery and lackadaisical plotting of these movies to be pretty tiresome but i'd seen a view to a kill a bunch of times when i was a kid like it, it was a movie that came on hbo 
and shit like that. And because I was a pudgy kid that didn't like the outdoors much, I still watched it several times. In that vein, I would recommend watching Octopussy, which is probably the apex of everything you're describing. Okay. At some point, maybe I will. Once uh, a really, really nice, like a mescaline or an ayahuasca uh, (laughs) that I get my hands on something like that and then can can watch Octopussy and and really feel like I'm giving it its, its due. Unfortunately, Bob. Yes. You do have another James Bond movie that you have to watch. And no ayahuasca. No ayahuasca. As we move into our fourth Bond in the series, Mr. Timothy Dalton, in License to Kill, the second of his two James Bond outings. And this was a tough call for me to make of which one of these two we should approach. And we decided to go with the least James Bondiest James Bond movie that has ever been made. I think the only thing about this movie that really makes it a James Bond movie is that the lead character is named James Bond. And that's probably it. And the Wishmaster is in it. The Wishmaster is in it. Who the hell else is in this one? Benicio del Toro. Is yeah, right? Benicio no. del Toro, uh, Robert Davi, and Frank McRae. It's really, really bad. So I can't recommend that you watch the movie, but I do highly recommend that you come back in two weeks and we will tell you all about this tragic nightmare of a motion picture that really pumped the brakes on James Bond for quite a few years. So as always, like, rate, review. We love hearing from everybody on social media as well as uh, via email or you can you can write us a regular letter. We don't really have an address you could send it to, but you could write it and that's, that's good enough as well. So. Just put pick six movies on the envelope it'll make its way to us care of the lord (laughs) (laughs) but any final thoughts that you have on a view to a kill yeah i'm i'm very disappointed that we have to retire our our short-lived christopher walken impressions he makes traditionally pretty good movies so it's it's tough to get him on this particular show but i can't imagine we're done with that no we'll find a way to have mr walken come back and visit us in your dreams that sounds fantastic like freddy krueger i haunt you (laughs) we will see everyone in two weeks time thanks for listening